and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show. We have a couple topics coming your way, one of which, as you heard from the theme song, we're going to talk a little bit more about Gravity Rush 2. I finally finished that game after many hours of toil. And, uh, it, we're is, gonna, it is a long game. Long fucking game. We're going to talk about the story and how the last hours of that game really make you feel like you're on acid. In yeah, the no, best that, way possible. That, yeah, now you know why for like two weeks now I've really wanted to be able to talk about the ending of that game because it is pretty nuts. Yeah, I have issues go. with the middle of Gravity Rush 2. I think that game sags and is way too long. But it sticks the landing as hard as any video game has. Like the last couple hours of that game are insane in the best way possible. Yeah. And I love it. And it it's the kind of thing, we'll talk about this later, but I, my immediate reaction on finishing it was, I loved this. I don't want a Gravity Rush 3. Like, no, yeah, yeah. they nailed it. They never need to do one of these again. That's as, like, complete an experience I can imagine it, of, like, a franchise attaining. Yeah, it, it's something where it feels like once you have finished it, it feels like somehow this... Even if maybe it wasn't, I have no idea, but it feels like this was the plan all along. Like, yeah. it feels like, ideally... They would remake Gravity Rush 1 in, like, the Gravity Rush 2 engine and just release it as just Gravity Rush or Gravity Days. Yeah. And, like, have that be, like, the definitive version of the game because it is so... Complete. It is It is so that thing, you know? Yeah, so if you haven't played these yet, just buy both games, play it all. Maybe yeah. take some time in the middle of Gravity Rush 2 and walk away because, basically, it's also Gravity Rush 3. And <laughs> just take a break and then come back to it. Yeah. I don't know. I think I would have liked it more if I did that. But um, great game, and, and we have a lot to talk about. We're also going to talk about two movies, one of which we'll do in spoiler depth. Yes. And uh, the first one is the Lego Batman movie, which I saw. You haven't had a chance I to see. I haven't seen it yet, okay. no. It's really good. I'll talk about it a little bit in a minute, like non-spoilers. Um, not that I think you can spoil that one too much, but we'll, we'll talk about that. It's really good. And we're also going to talk in spoiler detail, and I'm so excited we can do this, about John Wick Chapter 2. Yes, yes, that is the official title of the movie. We both saw it. I immediately texted you after I saw it and said, you have to see this. I have to talk about this movie. And do you understand why? Yeah, and it was really funny, too, because you texted me at, like, midnight, basically. Yes. <laughs> just like, because obviously that's when you saw the movie, like, right when it opened and saw the text. I was like, oh, okay, well, it's the weekend. I could probably find some time to see this. Yeah, it it's a great movie, right? Yeah, no, it's really, really well done. It's I feel a little bad that the John Wick movies have to come out, like, in the same time period as Mad Max Fury Road. Because sure, if it yeah. weren't for that movie, they'd be walking the fuck away with the title of, like, best Hollywood action movie of the decade. Yeah, just these two, just so good. John, you know, I I saw a uh, double feature of John Wick one and two. That's why I was out till midnight watching those. Yeah. And you know, it was great to see the first one in theaters again. I love that movie, but I think the second one just takes it to a, a whole different level. And just watching how those films evolve and how I think just every element of that film improves in the second one to a degree where I think the first one is like a great, fun action movie. I think the second one is something more where it somehow keeps the sense of fun and goes even more ludicrous with some of its like crazy satire things. Sure, yeah. But it also, frankly, has like an emotional like resonance and thematic depth to it that I was not expecting. Out of a movie where Keanu Reeves shoots that many people in the head? He shoots a lot of people in the head. He Maybe that we should have kept that for the spoiler section, but, you know, it's, hey. It's, you just watch the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so good. I was, like, so shaken after watching that movie, and I cannot wait to talk about it, because it's, it's so fucking good. Yeah. It's, it is a movie that is way more gorgeous than it has, like, any yes. right to be in some ways. Like, it's so beautifully shot, mm-hmm. I think, is, is the... the Sort of, in some ways, the biggest improvement. Not to say that, like, John Wick 1 is, it's like, a boring visual movie, but John Wick 2 is just, like, really spectacular. It totally, it's the production design and the cinematography. Yeah. Like, 
if it won't, but if it, that production design does not get an Oscar nomination next year, that's like so stupid. I yeah. can't even like because it's it's better than most production design I saw last year. You know, it's like it's yeah. amazing, and then the cinematography on top of that. My description was, and there's a very specific reason for this. We'll talk about later. It looks like the makers of John Wick Two looked at Skyfall, which is like one of the best shot action movies ever by Roger Deakins, and said. Yeah. Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going to fucking one-up that. And they, I think they kind of did, and that's amazing. Yeah. So it's it's a great movie, and I cannot wait to talk about it. So we'll get on to that. Um, those will be our main topics. But uh, let's see if we've got any stuff to talk about. Sean, you got any stuff? I've got I've got a big heaping pile of stuff. Uh, I really deep don't even know how to talk about it. But about th- almost exactly three hours ago, I finished Yakuza 0, which is a game I put about 80 hours into. Jesus. If you go by the playtime clock, which I think is basically accurate because it doesn't count if you're in the pause menu at all and i was not expecting to put that much time in that game but it basically turned into a persona 5 scenario of any free time i had i just immediately dumped into yakuza 0 and yeah that game is really good like i was expecting it to be good and i really enjoyed the beginning of the game because i think the beginning is fantastic and when i talked about it last podcast i was like at chapter four or five and the game is basically 17 or 18 chapters long and it like, it just keeps on getting better and better the deeper you go in, and it's something that... Almost kind of like Gravity Rush 2, in a weird way, of, of where you... There are things that happen, like, kind of early on in Yakuza 0, where you kind of ignore it, and then when you get deeper and deeper into the story, you realize, oh, all these little things that they were doing was all actually building up to something grander, in a sort of thematic sense and a literal sense, that I didn't really have a good vision of at first, and I was sort of taking for granted some of the things that they were doing, and it is... Like, Yakuza 0 has such an unbelievable ending in terms of, like... By ending, I mean, like, the last five hours or something of that game because it's a pretty long stretch, both in terms of the gameplay and then the, the final cinematic section is basically, like, 30 minutes of just cutscenes. But it is... It just delivers a really, really impactful story that has a really, really fun, like, brawler kind of gameplay that is particularly suited for having incredible boss fights because... That is like the ending of that game is just you, like one after another of these dramatic confronta- confrontations with some of the major characters in the game and of just like you have been building up for fucking, for my case, like 79 hours or something up to that point of seeing these two fucking like muscled up Japanese dudes rip their goddamn shirts off and punch the shit out of each other. And when they get to that part, it is maybe the most satisfying final boss fight I've had in any video game I've played. Just in terms of the the emotional and like dramatic impact of it, combined with the the actual gameplay of when you beat the ever living shit out of someone in that game, it really feels good. Like you you throw people against walls and kick their faces in and you smack them in the face with baseball bats. It is just the 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 visceral nature of the combat and the really like the weighty sense of just really laying into a dude with your bare hands like there's something that they capture in Yakuza with that that I haven't seen many other games sort of like get that across and it does have this really cumulative impact of of just having Kiryu scream this fucking dude's name at the top of his lungs and just jump up and punch him with everything he has and and you get that kind of what is something that like a lot of like the great Yakuza movies will have that kind of confrontation will have that sense of like these two kind of like mammoth personalities are like finally being able to come up against each other and so yeah like the, and then even outside of the the fantastic sort of action climax and those confrontations and the boss fights and stuff the emotional payoff of the ending and the way that they take all the thematic things they develop of 
uh, your two protagonist characters, Kiryu and Majima, who are two sort of principal characters in the, the franchise as a whole. And the whole story is kind of about how these two people become the people that they become and walk two very different sort of like roads of Yakuza life and Kiryu who's the main protagonist of the whole franchise becomes he's kind of almost like Superman-esque in how just like principled he is and he's like completely undefeatable he will throw down with anyone if he thinks like he's in the right to do it and like he's you know that kind of Yakuza archetype and then Majima is a character who he's more almost kind of like Joker-ish in terms of he's like nutso and he sort of lives in the moment and lives for himself and but neither of those characters are necessarily right in that place at the beginning Majima in particular is nowhere near like he's not crazy at all really at the beginning and seeing how these two people sort of diverge their paths in life and end up in these two completely different spots it's really fascinating the way they tell that story especially when early on it was not apparent to me that that was how this story was going to go and and that like the ending part of the game i think and how they handled the character's development is so just fantastic. The whole setting of late 80s Japan and the, like, the height of the sort of like the economic boom in Japan with like the tech boom and all that stuff. And that sort of 1920s America-esque just affluence all over the place and, and people sort of like falling into insane wealth and sort of falling into this weird party lifestyle. That's very much sort of the setting of Yakuza Zero. And the way they thematize that on top of all of it is also great in that throughout the whole game money is such a big thing both in terms of like in the story obviously all these yakuza dudes are fighting over money and territory for like territory to be able to build up buildings that are going to like have businesses that were going to make them more money so it's very much about this sort of accumulation of, of material wealth and then also in the actual gameplay like when you go and fight people you punch them and money just comes flying out of them and you get money because money in the game is both used to buy things and it is used as basically experience points to level up your abilities. So, that makes sense. Yeah, so everything in the game is just about getting more and more and more money. And it's something that's it's so smart about the game's design that, that feels like something that Grand Theft Auto or those kinds of games need to figure out. Is that in Grand Theft Auto, money is extremely important in the story part of the game. But in the gameplay part of the game, like fucking 10 hours into any Grand Theft Auto game, you have more money than you're ever going to use. Because all you have to buy are like some guns, body armor, and ammo. And it's like... Maybe there'll be like a property mini game or like buying cars, but those games are always terrible about that shit. Whereas like Yakuza Zero, it's it's not just about being able to buy property in the mini games and then buying all that shit, but it's just like straight up about like if you want more health, you have to fucking throw down like two hundred thousand yen to get that fucking little tiny health upgrade. Or if you want to do this cool like suplex move, you gotta fucking invest money literally in yourself and just absorb the money somehow into your body that is going to make you more powerful and so that sort of the confluence of the gameplay and, and narrative conceits there of making money feel very important is incredibly effective in building up that kind of what is in some ways a kind of standard uh, Yakuza organized crime movie kind of trope of you know all these people trying to sort of like accumulate wealth through nefarious means but like that's not really what they want or what they need like th like everyone has these different needs of, of either companionship or they want status or or you know they want to sort of live by their principles and i think the cool one of the cool parts of the oxy zero story is that it has that veneer of everyone's just trying to get money and is trying to get this plot of land in the middle of this highly developed section of tokyo that is going to be like if we get this we are going to own this whole district and we're like we are just rolling in cash and like that's what they're like 
face objective is, but really the story just like rips away at those sort of like excuses to get at like what what do these people really want? Like what is your actual objective? Because money is not an objective, it's a means to an end. Like what are the ends that these people actually fucking want? And is it worth causing the kind of pain that these people are causing to get that end? And then I think the the way the story plays that is is incredible as well. So basically, like top to down, I think Yaxa Zero just completely nails it in a way I was kind of floored by by the end of just being able to bring these different uh, elements together that they build up throughout the whole story and then the whole just sort of like insane journey you go on and nails the ending in a way that very very few games or very very few stories really do. It, yeah, like Yakuza Zero is fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. The other side of that, of the reason why the game, I spent like 80 hours in the game, was because the side stuff in Yakuza Zero is also like some of the best side stuff I've ever seen in a game like this, where the, the sort of MO in Yakuza feels like, even outside of the, the side quests, which I talked about last time, that are generally hilarious, like the, the one where Kiryu gets this woman who keeps on asking him for a visa, a pizza, because he can't understand what she's saying, and there's just a billion of those there, there's actually there's literally a hundred of those side quests in the game and they're basically all really funny a couple of them are more dramatic but they're generally just hilarious but even outside the sub stories which are really really good there's also the just side like mini game activities that tend to actually tie into sub stories which is an important part of it but that was something the last time we did this podcast i hadn't really touched at all in yakuza zero and that's what i've spent the majority of my time doing in the game is just like is like the bowling minigame and the karaoke minigame and the dancing minigame and running the fucking cabaret club you run. Like all the little tiny side stuff that like you do in one mission in Grand Theft Auto and never come back to or like you run past that icon on your map in Watch Dogs and you never think about it again. That like, you know, you like one time played Liar's Dice in Red Dead Redemption because you thought it was kind of cool. And then you're like, well, I'm never doing that again because it's like it was kind of cool, but it's, not a, it's yeah. not a thing. In Yakuza 0, basically, almost every single one of those kinds of tasks are good enough and, like, done well enough that you could totally sell them as a separate, like, $10, $15, $20 PSN or mobile title that's just, like, the bowling minigame in Yakuza 0 is fucking fantastic, and it's really in-depth, and there's a lot of skill, and there's a really satisfying skill curve to learning, sort of, at, like, how to manipulate the systems and put your, like, the right spin on the ball to get the strike... And there's a great sub-story that follows along that of your relationship and, like, friendship with the woman who's, like, at the desk at the bowling alley and that has an incredible fucking joke payoff if, if people are playing this game. If, do, if you're, even if you don't want to do any of the other side shit, do, see the bowling minigame to its conclusion because it has one of the best jokes in the whole game and it comes out of nowhere and it's hilarious. But then there's, like, a pocket car circuit racing where you, like, make model cars and have to custom customize them to run on these circuits and you race against children. And that's another great, hilarious side story that where you have the you sort of start a friendship with Pocket Circuit Fighter, who's, like, the 20-year-old college dropout dude who's just, like, a part-time job is to work there. And, and Kiryu just is very, very serious and intent on being very good at pocket car racing for whatever reason because he's very serious about everything he does. And the dancing minigame is, I actually, I straight up, I want a, a separate game that is just the dancing minigame, like, fleshed out with, like, 50 songs or something. Because the dancing minigame is something that I've never seen another rhythm game that is quite like it. Where the, the game is basically, gives you, like, I think a 3x3, three three or, no, it's more like a 4x4 four four grid. 
and then the button prompts will appear on spots of that grid, and you have to move your cursor to get to the, the button prompt in time and press the button prompt in time. And so that's very easy to do. The trick is that to accumulate points, you have to figure out a way to accumulate the most number of steps on that grid before you get to that spot and, and then hit it on time oh. to sort of like cash in the points. And figuring out how to do that with the different songs and getting in the rhythm of the songs, especially advancing in the substory that is associated with the dancing that like eventually gets pretty hard and sort of trying to get up to that point and, and figure out how do you engage with this minigame? It was so rewarding, and I spent like five hours just doing all the stuff associated with the dancing minigame because there's a sub-story associated with it, with Kiryu and with Majima, and so they both have little stories that they go down. Then plus there's just like mastering all the songs, and then there's doing all the karaoke. There's, you have fucking, the pool minigame is fantastic of that it's not just like, you know, you just fucking pick your angle and hit it. It's you can hit the ball from any angle, like with the pool cue on the ball to like, you can like hop the ball over other balls and do that kind of shit. It's not just like the stock standard version of these kinds of mini games that you see in like every other open world game in the world. They are all just like as fleshed out as a dedicated pool game you would find with the mechanics. And there's something about that that is so amazing that it's like, I never played those things at all in any open world game, and I spent cumulatively like probably thirty something hours like doing all of that shit in this game, all over the place. Like, and, and I've I haven't even named all of them. Like, there's a shit ton. I didn't even really engage with all of them because I didn't even do any of the shit at the casino. It's the the amount of content in the game is insane. What's even more insane is how fleshed out and like fully lived in every little tiny piece of this game is. Like, it's so dense with stuff to do and it feels like all that stuff is worthwhile in a way that most open world games don't give a shit about it is interesting i think we're living at an interesting time for open world games Mm -hmm. because i think like around the world you've got like japanese developers like yakuza zero and gravity rush 2 and you got fucking polish developers like witcher 3 and you know japanese again like final fantasy 15 and then some western stuff but i do feel like other countries and other like, the, the kinds of people you don't associate with, like, open worlds, like, you know, your non-rock stars and stuff, your non-Ubisofts, are, like, starting to make these open world games that are much more dense and creative in how they treat yeah. these things. And it makes something like Grand Theft Auto V, to me, look more kind of regressive by the day of, like, that's a game stuck in 2008. Yeah. I'm so excited to see if they can bring... Like, Red Dead 2 I'm, is one of those games I wonder, is it just going to feel like a relic if Rockstar just keeps making open world games like they did at the start of the last generation? Yeah. Or is it going to feel like, because that kind of game has come so far since that kind of thing has happened. So it's just, it's interesting to me, and boy do I want to play Yakuza 0. It's, it's, you, you really should play, because I, I want you to. Would, you would appreciate a lot of the stuff of the game a lot. I, I would. Like, Man. you saying all of this, I now completely understand why Beat Takeshi agreed to be in Yakuza, Yakuza 6. 6. Really this sounds like his that. kind of thing, and he's a guy who famously doesn't like video games, so that's hilarious to me. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is also kind of funny that you see in Yakuza 0... It's generally really easy to tell which characters are like new to Yakuza Zero because they're generally modeled after the actors that play them. Because most of the voice actors in the game that are like the more modern characters are are pulled from like movie actors or TV actors and not necessarily voice actors because that's sort of stylistically what they go for. And the characters are modeled after the actor, so like there are actually there are a couple of characters in the game that you can I like could recognize a couple of movies I'd seen them in. And it's really funny to see, like, this really realistic, like, highly detailed, 
Japanese dude next to like Kiryu. That's like Kiryu's character design is good and everything, but it's like you can tell that that's not an actual. There's no real person that quite looks like him. Like right. nobody's got a chin that quite looks like that, and like an eyebrow that quite looks like that. But it, it, it's something that I think it works with the game. But it is kind of funny thinking about the Takeshi Kitano being in Yakuza Six. I think it's yeah. going to have that similar quality of like that looks like Takeshi Kitano. And that looks like a video game character. See, I have to catch up on them before then because I am so excited to see how the fuck you do Takeshi Kitano in motion capture. Because yeah. he has, like, the most expressive face in Japan. Yeah. And, like, one of the most recognizable faces in the world because it's all scarred and beat up. Yeah. And I'm just so... Because I've seen that little clip from the trailer. But I'm so fascinated. And, and that game, I think, is coming out next year. Yeah. And then we're also getting the Yakuza Kiwami remake, yeah, right? The, the, the Yakuza 1 remake is coming this summer. There's no definitive release date. I know because... I I spent like 12 minutes after beating Yakuza 0 watching Yakuza Kiwami trailers on YouTube. Nice. It's just like desperate. I fucking really need to play that game now. I can't wait. Well, speaking of video games. Yes. I finished Gravity Rush 2. And for a number of... Like part of it was I think I entered into Gravity Rush 2. Like I didn't. I hadn't taken enough time off from like the marathon of 2016. And then I did my marathon of Persona 4. Again. Yeah, and then I jumped into Gravity Rush too. And I, I had my nice like Hitman buffer of I yeah. just spent a lot of time doing escalation contracts and Hitman with my video game time instead of being a maniac and replaying a fucking Persona, trying to jam that in there. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's been nice that that itch has been scratched though. Yeah, that's, that's like out of my mind. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? So yeah, so some of that was just, and I'll talk about certain things with Gravity Rush too that I do think it's got problems in the middle. I think some of those were exacerbated to me of like being kind of exhausted with video games in general. So the thing I do with that, when so I finished Gravity Rush 2, put it on the shelf, it's there, and I'm glad I finished it for a number of reasons, mostly because it was really good, but also uh, because then I had more free time to do other things. So I've been kind of trying to like find other things to do with my time and recharge from like all of that, and one of the things I do with that in terms of video games is that's when I go back and play like old video games sure, yeah. that I want to re-experience, because you know, I think as with any part of your media diet, books, movies, games, it's good to split it between the new stuff and then go back and actually see some history, because it's like... To me, that's the foundation of everything, and that's what I want to experience. So, because The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is launching in March, and that is the next new game I plan on playing, I've been playing The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. But it's a very good game. Which goes under the heading of... It's not quite a game I've never played before, because I have experience with Link to the Past more than other Zelda games I had not previously played. But I've never like played through the whole thing seriously. Right. And so I got it on my 3DS, and I've been playing it. And, yeah, this, that's one of the best games ever made. It's, it's in that heading of, like, Super NES games from yeah. that generation where everyone will put them at, like, number one on a list. It's, it's everyone's favorite game in some way or another. And you play it and you're thinking nothing can live up to that hype. It totally lives up to that hype. It's totally on that same level of, like, a Mario World or a, you know, Super Metric where you go back and you're like, yeah, this hasn't aged a day. This is, like, a perfect game, you know. And I so, totally think that, like, you know, because I've played a couple of the 3D Zeldas now because I've been trying to, like rectify this like gap in my gaming knowledge which is I never really played Zelda as a kid yeah. which is particularly weird because you are such a big Nintendo guy it that's is like the huge Nintendo franchise you never really engaged with it is it's weird but I'm engaging with it more you know I played Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask on the yes. 3DS so I have a folder of like Zelda games on my 3DS I think I have most of the ones available 
You can play almost every Zelda game on the 3DS, except, like, the newer um, 3D ones. Yeah, like, like Wind Waker, post-Wind Waker. Yeah, you can't play those, but, like, everything before it, I think pretty much every one is on there, which is kind of crazy. That's yeah. a lot of games. But anyway, I've been playing Link to the Past, love that game, and I think, having played Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, I love those games... I am probably going to be in that camp of people who would go with Link to the Past over oh, the so 3D you're games. you're going to be in the camp that's wrong about Legend of Zelda instead of the righteous camp that says Ocarina of Time is like the beautiful masterpiece and everything else is like, it was either building up to this or is a pale imitation of this. Uh, Which I think is the I only right opinion on Legend of Zelda. I don't think I, don't I agree quite with any perspective there. But I don't know. I just like personally like there's something about the specific dungeon design in A Link to the Past that I find more involving you know, on kind of the 2D plane where it also plays with some 3D mechanics than I do in some of the other 3D Zelda games I've played. And look, I, I come to this for, as like kind of a neutral observer. I have yeah, no yeah. nostalgia for this stuff, so I don't really think one game is better than the other. I just totally dig. I think the graphics of A Link to the Past are so fucking gorgeous, and they always have been. I fucking adore the music in that game. Yeah. It's so freaking good. Especially now I'm deep into the Dark World part of the game. And the, oh, the overworld theme for the Dark World... It's, like it's a, one of the best Zelda themes. It might be the best Zelda theme. I think it's the best Zelda yeah, theme. It's really fucking good. Because I've heard it everywhere with like Zelda rearrangements and stuff, and I didn't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. And so when it started playing in the Dark World, I was like, oh, shit, it's that song. Yeah. And that's amazing. Because like, there's really no moment like that in Ocarina of Time. Like If you've paid attention to games at all, even if you haven't played it, you're going to know where the songs come from in that game. You know? You're not going to be surprised when Link busts out the Ocarina and you're like, that's where that comes from. You're not yeah, going to yeah. do that. But with Link to the Past, I got to the Dark World and I was like, that fucking theme. But no, all the music, all the graphics. And I just there's something about... I do like the kind of simplicity, but also the depth of it in that that is one of those games that... Looks so simple on the surface in some ways, and then you get into the meat of it, and you're like, how did they make this for the Super NES? This game is enormous. You kind of think that with, like, a Super Metroid, but Super Metroid is sort of heavier on the backtracking and the rediscovery of areas. With A Link to the Past, it's not just one giant overworld, but two. And even if one is kind of an overlay of the other, they still are distinct in a lot of ways. And then all the dungeons, which get pretty big and complex at some point. And I was reading about this, that, you know, it used, like, twice as much memory as every other Super NES game, and they still had to cut down on certain things. Like, the the Dark World is literally coded as just an overlay of the Light World, because that's the only way they could fit it on the cart, and things like that. But, man, that's, that's a great game, and it's one of those things that I'm really happy to be playing and, like, have that kind of gap in my gaming knowledge filled in. Um, because, like, I never had a Super NES as a kid. I started yeah. with, like, the N64. So I've played plenty of Super NES games over the years, and that is kind of my sweet spot when I want to go back and play an old game. It's something from that generation. And the great thing about the Super NES is it has such an insane library, I will never run out of great Super NES games to yeah, go rediscover. No. Yeah. It is crazy if you look at, like, that five-year period, like... I don't know if there's any way to argue that that is the best generation of, like, just, like, the sheer number of, like, influential classics that came out in a yeah. pretty compact time period is nuts. Yeah, it is it is definitely, like, in that sweet spot where it's, like, the people had been making 2D games since, like, literally the 70s and, like, had been building up that technology. And then, like, you reach that point where it's, like, right on the precipice of 3D graphics were sort of becoming a thing... But then you have, like, your 16-bit consoles coming out, and they are just, like, we have mastered sort of a lot of things about 2D games. Like, not to say that, obviously, 2D games have gotten way more complex and, and better and stuff since then in, in, in technical ways. But, but it definitely reached that point where it's, like, and we are just going to, like, double down and do this, and we are going to, like, sort of master all these genres we have been building up to all this time. And then it, like, 
has that weird awkward reset where it's like and now we're at the first 3d consoles for like serious consoles and basically every single game on this console except for like two are going to be terrible forever because like they're going to be you will go back and you will play mario kart 64 and you will say how did anybody ever enjoy this game how is did anyone ever play this game because you can't see anything five feet in front of your fucking face in this game and there's no music this is like by any standard other than at that exact moment in history this would be unacceptable you know what I compare it to? Yeah. Is the transition in movies from silent to sound. And that there's this right, period yeah. in the late 20s and early 30s for film where sound is there. And some studios are experimenting with it. But early sound films are awful. Any film historian will tell you that. Because you couldn't move the camera. And you had to have the mic like right just outside of the shot or something. And then the sound yeah. would still even be bad. And like there's just... It limited people, whereas with silent film, they had had 30 years of learning how to perfect this craft, and it was at the absolute height. And there are silent films from the end of that era that are just, to this day, kind of unbelievable in the technical mastery and the storytelling mastery. And I think there are a lot of people, film historians, who would still say that might just be the best period for film. I think certainly for American film, you could make that argument. And that maybe we never got back to those kind of heights in that kind of pure cinema sense. And I think you could make that same argument for gaming in the Super NES era of like, it's just the absolute best of what like gaming was up to that point. And then, you know, we're still kind of on the upward trajectory of whatever we are now. Yeah, like we haven't hit sort of the limit in the way that like... The, the Super Nintendo and the Genesis sort of were hitting that limb, like technological limit of with this kind of style of graphics and stuff and with this kind of technology, this is basically as far as you can go with it, with like these kinds of sprites and stuff. It's like, that's more or less the limit that like you can reasonably do. And so they did so they feel like they, perf- they perfected that with yeah. that technology. And so, then, then we're like, like you said, we're still building up to like trying to hit some sort of limit of like, you know, 3D graphics keep on getting better and better and better and better and better and better, 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 better. And, and like the, we're still using the same basic sort of techniques to make video games now that we always were yeah. for like 3D games. But bringing it back to A Link to the Past, yeah. the other thing that's fun for me playing it is, you know, having played Ocarina of Time and loved that, because this is the funny thing which we've always talked about is like what makes Ocarina of Time and Mario 64 so amazing is how thoroughly they broke that curve of like yeah. they're the first 3D games and they were the best for a really long time. I mean, they were the first 3D games to do it right and there's yeah. like there's something about like anything that is manages to do that and feel like oh this is like we did this the right way the first time and the sheer amount of ingenuity and innovation that has to go into that creates like a really unique piece of art you know and that that's true for like anything is i think the first time like someone sort of like people have been experimenting with this technique or this technology and then this one thing comes around and is like oh this is how you fucking do color film is like okay that's always going to be like one of the fucking most beautiful fucking color films ever you right know? exactly um but it is fun because you know ocarina of time is literally the next zelda game after link to the past at least on home consoles i know there's the like link's awakening in between yeah. on mobile but that's kind of a different thing And just seeing that jump is fascinating to me of seeing... I did not know that so many things that I kind of assumed originated in Ocarina of Time are actually from A Link to the Past. Yeah. Like certain pieces of music and like the Zoras and different other monsters and things like that. And like the Dark World concept is very similar to the Adult Link world concept in, in Ocarina. So it's just fascinating to play A Link to the Past and see that all done beautifully in that game and then think... And in just a couple of years, they were, like, rewriting how you would make a game, period. But with a lot of these same things, but, like, they were so radically different because of the style. It is, it, that transition is so fascinating. And yeah. it's, 
yeah, it's a good game, and I'm enjoying playing it. And you know, I love having my my Super NES games on the go. And I I hope uh, the Nintendo Switch gets their fucking Virtual Console news out soon, so we can know if we'll have that on that console. Yeah, yeah. It is. I I. I'm not worried necessarily, but I don't know why we don't know certain things about the Nintendo yeah, Switch yet. Like it's it's coming out so soon. Like yeah. it's we're getting so close, and we've learned nothing new about it. And it does feel like is this thing actually going to come out? Like it, it almost is like Mass Effect Andromeda or something. It's yeah. like you, like you guys are being so coy with certain pieces of information. That's like what's going on? Like most other consoles. We would did we, not come out like this. We have not officially seen the UI yet. It's, exactly, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> stuff like that. Like you can get a weird glimpse of it in like their press conferences. That's kind of it, it's and even weird. that kind of almost looks like a temp UI. Yeah. So who who knows what's going on with that? I Nintendo's been like so confident about that March release date for like a year now that you assume. I mean, it's definitely have, going to come out. Right. It just feels like like they get like with Mass Effect and Drummond, it just feels like if this is really coming out here, this is just like a lot of other people making really stupid like marketing decisions and stuff. Like, right. You should get some messaging out there about some of these issues to get people excited by saying like, yes, and virtual console is like going to be this and it's going to be good. Presumably they're going to have, or presumably they think that their policies about all that shit is going to be good or they wouldn't be doing them. Right. So if you think that they're going to be good policies, fucking put the message out there. Or you have bad policies. Like, yeah. I don't understand what they're doing. You know, it's a lot of stuff where, like, I don't necessarily need a robust virtual console day one. I'm not going to add, you know, that's a lot of work. Yeah. But, like, I'd at least like an indication of where they're going with it. Yeah. You know? Like, like, presumably they would have at least some virtual console stuff day one. Right. Like, yeah, if you can't have, like, Mario World and Link to the Past on their day one, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. Because the Nintendo Switch, like, if it has like at least a virtual console to the level of what the 3DS and Wii U have done, if not hopefully bigger than that, that will just be my favorite console ever. Because being able to take those things everywhere, it's like because I'm playing Link to the Past on the 3DS because I just wanted to be able to kind of move around with it this weekend because I'm taking care of my dog and things like that. Anyway, um, but I wanted to have it on the go. And the thing is, Super NES games look so fucking gorgeous on the Wii U, where they're, like, natively rendered in HD, and they look so beautiful. And it's not like they look bad on the 3DS, it's just the 3DS has a limited resolution. And they look fine, but it's, it's like, you know, the, making that choice is hard. And the great thing about the Switch is, if they do it right, you won't have to make that choice. That's wonderful. Yeah. So. It's weird, because I played through Link to the Past on the GBASP version, or the, the Game Boy Advance version, but I played it on my SP like I just think of that game as a portable game because yep. I put so much time into it that way that it like I sometimes I forget that like oh right originally you're supposed to sit down on a couch and play this game in I, my head that's so like I'm on my school bus I'm going to pop this out and play this game. There's a lot of Super NES games I think about that way because I grew up with the Game Boy Advance yeah. and they loved their Super NES ports on that. Yes, it was it was the precursor to them reselling their it was the first instance of them trying to resell their old games to people over and over again. Yes. All right, so let's go ahead and move on and I want to talk about the Lego Batman movie. The Lego Batman movie came out this weekend. The sequel, spin-off to the Lego movie, which came out a couple years ago and had Lego Batman in it. Played Does by... it have any specific like continuity drop reference kind of things to that movie? Or is it just like, this is basically the same take on the character? Uh, it's the same take on the character. No like specific references, but it is more like the Lego movie than I think I thought it would be. Like... Uh, obviously it has the same animation style, but if anything it's gotten better in terms of how much thought they put into everything on screen looks like it is actually made out of Legos. And things like, you know, when there is fire, it's those little fire Legos like raining right. out of things. And I think the animation has gotten even better in terms of like texture because... 
the main characters in particular and like Lego Batman look so textured like they are just Legos being filmed. And of course, you couldn't do any of this stuff in stop motion because Batman is doing all this crazy action stuff. But he just looks like a Lego minifigure and that's amazing. Like the cowl has little scratches and scuffs. Like everything in the world is just worn enough that it looks like actual Legos. Because actual Legos, once you play with them for five minutes, aren't pristine. Yeah. And it's something I actually wish we saw in the uh, Lego video games a little bit more. Is because often, and I know that's a hard thing to do with games, but maybe we're getting to that point. Where, you know, those games often look, like, a little too plasticky almost, because they're, like, so kind of pristine. Yeah, they're, like, store model Legos instead of the Legos you had. Yeah, and I think the Lego movie had kind of a balance between the store model stuff and the kind of worn stuff. Lego Batman definitely goes for the more worn side, and it's just, the the animation's beautiful. Um, But then also, I didn't, I thought this was just going to be, like, Lego Batman and probably some other DC stuff, like Superman, and all of that is in there. But they do the Lego movie thing of having a lot of other franchises represented. Oh, cool. Because, not to spoil too much, but the Joker's plan in this movie involves um, opening the Phantom Zone. And releasing a bunch of villains. And it turns out the Phantom Zone is home to all the villains of, like, the shared Lego universe. So you have, like, this movie has an amazing amount of Lord Voldemort in it. Okay, <laughs> For a Batman sure. movie. You never thought you would see Voldemort in a Batman movie this much, but that he's in it. That sounds pretty good. And there's some other ones I don't want to spoil because they're so funny. But it, it one, it makes you realize how many properties WB owns, uh-huh. and B, how many properties of those have been turned into Legos. Because it's pretty great how many are represented here, and that this, like the original Lego movie, has that mentality of like, a kid having all their action figures and just putting them together even if it makes no sense because that's what's fun. And I I love that sense about it. It's like, at a certain point, the Lego movie stuff should disgust you with how crassly commercial it could be. Sure, yeah. But the movies are, like, so creative and so committed to having fun and, and having, like, good, clean, like, moral fun <laughs> that, like, you don't get mad at them for that. It's very strange. Um, and speaking of all that, so, so all of that is great, and it definitely, if you liked the Lego movie, even if you're not a Batman fan, I think you would like this movie a lot. It is probably, you know, more aimed at general fans of this kind of humor than, like, specifically, like, a hardcore Batman fan. Because... The thing I love most about the Lego Batman movie is I think it is the Batman movie we desperately need right now. Because it is a send-up and a piercing criticism of like our current cultural incarnation of Batman, which I think has been pushed to its extreme most recently with the Ben Affleck Batman and the Zack Snyder take Wait, on the character. are you trying to imply that, that Lego Batman doesn't just murder people indiscriminately? He doesn't, but here's... Oh, but, but that's what I'm looking for in my Batman, Jonathan. Everyone knows that that's what Batman does. He just fucking straight up caps people with a fucking gun. That's what he does. It's Batman. That's his whole thing was like, my parents were shot in front of me with guns, so I'm going to dress up like a bat and shoot other people in front of their, their fucking children with my guns. Like, that's, that's his thing, right? That's why he's a superhero. That's why I look up to him. But I think, you know, uh, what I was going to say is that the Zack Snyder Batman, who is this just jerk off a thon of like what 13 year olds think a hero is right that is a symptom it's not the problem and it's a symptom i think of a larger cultural view of batman that you can trace the line from the dark knight returns to here of batman getting not just darker and darker and darker over time but more fascistic and into this zone where he's cool because he works all on his own and he doesn't need anyone else and he has all the money in the world and he can just beat whether he's killing them or beating the shit out of them and you know it's it's something where like slowly the batman thing became less of like 
all of our like social structures are failing and so it falls upon me the like as the last desperate effort to try to like use violence to stop crime and it more becomes like I'm really good at beating the shit out of people so I'm going to use violence to stop crime and fuck everything else and it's like instead of Batman being like tragically like regretful of the actions he needs to take he's like he gets horny because of the shit he does, right? Exactly. And that's what Lego Batman makes fun of. Because, like, from the opening of the movie onwards, where, like, it starts with the WB logo from The Dark Knight, and it has Lego Batman making fun of it, or, like, saying, like, this is so cool because it's dark and blue, and that's how you know this is a deep movie. Yeah. And it's, like, stuff like that. And the movie opens with, like, a big action scene where Batman, you know, sings a song about himself, about how awesome he is and how awesome his life is, because he doesn't need anyone else, and he's just got all the gadgets, and he's putting away all the bad guys, and there's, like, no challenge in his life and all this stuff. And it's, like, the total, like, taking that view of Batman to the nth degree absurd without, like, you know, the murder and stuff like right, that. Yeah. But, you know, you can tell if, if Zack Snyder made the Lego Batman movie, Batman would just be killing people and would have no self-awareness. Yeah. It's the Batman who, like, can defeat Superman in a battle because, like, he's thought it 500 steps ahead. Yeah. And he's like, I have my kryptonite super robo suit it's, and all this shit. It's the Batman who is as self-obsessed with himself as some Batman fans are obsessed with Batman. Exactly, it's like, yeah. it's the perfect way to do it. And then what they transition into is Batman goes home to the Batcave and he's had a great day. And you see he has no life because he's got this big empty bat cave and Alfred is, <laughs> the first time you see Alfred, it's security footage and he's scrubbing the bathroom floor. And it's like this thing of like you never think of, yeah. but Batman makes his butler do that kind of shit, presumably. He's like father figure. So you have that and like Batman has his lobster thermidor, which is his favorite food, left in the microwave for him. And he gets that and he's watching Jerry Maguire in his bat theater okay. and, and laughing at it like it's the, uh, um, you had me at hello. And he just bursts out laughing like derisively. And that's Man. his whole life is he's just lonely and sitting in his bat cave with his computer who has the voice of Siri, which is really funny. And like he just has nothing. And I think so from the beginning it is such a smart kind of revealing portrait of like that version of Batman is empty. And the he's movie, a loser. He's, he's a, a loser. fucking loser. And that is what the movie is about, is that that Batman, who thinks he's on top of the world in the, cool, the hottest shit, is just a fucking loser. Yeah. And I'm like, they specifically trace this thing where like, this Batman is sort of supposed to be like, all incarnations of Batman, but up to the present day. So like, there's that clip in the trailer, and it's in the movie too, where Alfred says, you had that weird phase in 2012, in 2008, and they like, show all the clips all the way back to that weird phase in the 60s, and it shows him doing the Batusi, nice. and stuff like that. And I like the idea that like, what they're trying to say is, Batman, you've been around forever, and you're kind of just a loser now. Yeah. And that's kind of the view. And what they wind up building that into is a story... And I'm so happy I can say this about a mainstream Batman movie, about the importance of the Bat family. Thank, yes. That, that is yes. what, because the whole thing is like, and it would be cheesy if any other movie did this, but you can do this with Batman, which is Batman has like the picture on the wall of his parents and himself, like the night before they got murdered. And he looks at it and he's sad, but he's like repressing it. And Alfred is trying to tell him, your greatest fear is, is being part of a family again. And you don't want to be part of a family again. And Batman's like, no, I'm just, I'm better on my own, you know? And over the course of the movie, he accidentally adopts Robin. And so much fun stuff happens there. And Barbara Gordon becomes the new police commissioner and wants to work with Batman. And Alfred wants to help him out. And Batman is pushing these people away. But of course the arc of the movie is realizing he has to have these people in his life and accept them and be part of a family. Or one, he's just lame. But also he's not actually effectual. Because one of the other things they go into, and it's... it's so, I can't believe it took fucking Lego Batman for us to have this conversation... 
but it directly has the conversation about like Barbara Gordon becomes the new police commissioner and says, I respect what Batman's done for the city, but I want to create an environment where we don't need Batman. Yeah. Kind of like Harvey Dent in The Dark Knight, even though The Dark Knight kind of weirdly makes the argument that Harvey Dent was naive and stupid in a weird way because you always need a Batman is the end of the... And I, I think yeah. that movie knows what it's talking yeah, about, yeah. but like that movie is much more pessimistic. But so Barbara is like, we have all these... Like, Batman, you've been fighting criminals for 90 years without police help, and they're still out there on the streets. You've never caught the Joker. He's still out there. And so she's like, we've got to, like, fix our economy, and we've got to fix, you know, like, education and things like this so we don't have this, like, crime-infested city. And Batman is like, you know, I don't want that. But Barbara is trying to say, like, you can work with us. You can help. We will work with you, but you can't just be this loner working on your own because nothing will ever get better. And it's actually also, I don't want to spoil exactly how it happens, but basically why shit goes wrong in the Lego Batman movie, like the second act thing that makes everything go to hell, is because Lego Batman is super full of himself and takes something on that he shouldn't and makes a mistake by working alone. And so it's like, it really, the whole movie is about holding, I think, the legacy of Batman and his feet to the fire. And just kind of having that conversation that I think has been around the edges of certain Batman stories... And, you know, there's been good ones and bad ones over the last 30 years. But I think we're at a point where it feels like the Frank Miller version, taken to the nth degree, has won out. And it's like, no, that version of Batman is fucking stupid. And that's the message of this movie. And I love that there's a Batman movie in theaters that, A, kids can see. That's nice. That is a weird situation to be in where it's like you have to have the kids Batman movie because there's the adult Batman movie. Yeah. But, so, A, kids can see... But B ends with, you know, Batman, Robin, Batgirl, all these characters, like, being together and being a family. And it's not bad like Batman and Robin or something. Right, yeah. Although, in retrospect, I weirdly respect Batman and Robin more than I did when it came out. Uh Because, like, at least it tried to do those things. At least Batman didn't kill people in it. I don't know. At least he didn't fuck Batgirl. Like, weirdly, it didn't do a lot of things as bad as later Batman stories did them. Yeah, man. (laughs) But no, I, the Lego Batman movie is so good. It's so creative. There's so many good jokes. It has that same kind of sense of humor as the Lego movie where it's anything goes and they are throwing jokes at you a mile a minute. Uh, I love Will Arnett as Batman because like, it was kind of a one-joke character in the Lego movie because he's a side character. But in here, he has to be Batman for the whole movie and he's legitimately a really good Batman voice almost to the degree where maybe in like a DC animated movie, I'd love to hear Will Arnett do like a serious take on Batman because he's really good. Um, but I love that character. I love their Barbara Gordon, played by Rosario Dawson. I love their Alfred, played by uh, Rafe Fine. Oh, who, nice. Yeah. So perfect. So perfect. Which means he can't voice uh, Lego Voldemort, but that's okay. I, I mean, he could have. have. That, that would, could lead to a pretty great scene between Lego Alfred and yeah. Lego Voldemort. They don't go that in-depth with it, but it is funny. So Alfred, but the star of the movie to me is Michael Sarah as Robin. He is okay, so yeah. good, and I love their version of Dick Grayson, where this Dick Grayson has grown up in an orphanage because his parents died, and he just, like, like every day when Batman, like, saves the day, he will go by the orphanage and give them Batman merch and just kind of, like, to make it look like he's being a good dude, you know? But, like, because of that, Dick Grayson has, like, grown up idolizing Batman, and at a charity fundraiser, Batman accidentally adopts Dick without knowing it. And so, but Dick Grayson is like so happy to have a home and a family, and he wants to call Batman dad. And it's this whole running joke where Batman doesn't want him to call him dad, so finally he starts calling him Padre, and Batman thinks that sounds cool, so he lets him call him Padre. 
nice. in the movie. And, like, you know, the, the, the whole thing of how he gets the Robin costume in this is so perfect. And specifically his cape, which is one of those, like, little, you know, stiff Lego capes, is covered in glitter. <laughs> it's, like, so perfect. Nice. But, like... I love it. Like, this Robin is so cheerful, and, like, he really brings out the best in Batman, and he's, like, so trusting and just wants to be out there and be Batman's sidekick. And in a weird way, it's, like, the first mainstream, like, televisual Batman story we've had since, like, the fucking animated series that really shows the value and importance of Robin. Yeah. And I totally recognize, look, Robin can be a boring character used poorly, but when he's used well, he's such an essential part of this story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something where... I... For me personally, I like you can judge the quality of a Batman story generally by like if it has Robin in it, how does it use Robin? And if it doesn't have Robin in it at all, like why does it not have Robin in it? Or or like if not necessarily just Robin Robin or Nightwing or Batgirl, like why does this piece of Batman like media not want to engage with the Bat family at all? And generally it's because like they want that like stupid loner image where for me like Batman one has kind of never been that, but even if he was that, like, the Batman character has moved so far past that point to a character that is way more interesting to me, which is Padre Batman. It's, like, the patriarchal Batman that's... Not patriarchal, like, the fucking patriarchy, but in terms of he has created this organization and this brought together this group of people of the, that he has made this family for himself and is, you know, he is this fulfilled person who has moved past his traumas and that's what makes him a hero and he can do that for other people... That's the Batman I really love because that's also the Batman of most of the animated series. And so it's sort of the Batman I grew up with. And it is when, like, they just disregard that the Bat Family concept exists at all. It really annoys me because it is it provides so many great opportunities for stories. And those characters of Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon and, and you know, Tim Drake and all the, the Robins and all those characters have such a rich backstory and have so much potential to be used in stuff that it really frustrates me when something like, like the, the third Christopher Nolan movie just like, is like, ah, he's kind of Robin cause fuck Robin. Right. Like that stuff really gets under my skin. It does. And actually, you know, in retrospect now, I think, you know, I've, I've seen since The Dark Knight Rises came out, you know, more like the Batman 66 show and seeing the Lego Batman movie and things makes me think, I, I totally think Chris Nolan could have done a Robin integrated oh, yeah. into his movie if he wanted to. And I understand why it's not in Batman Begins or The Dark Knight. I don't know where you would tell that story there. But in The Dark Knight Rises, like, they came so close to it. And I think that movie would legitimately be so much better if it actually embraced the theme it's talking about. Because I think the ending to The Dark Knight Rises is kind of weak and ineffectual. Yeah. And part of that is because Batman doesn't really have to change. But if he had, you know, if if the Robin character were more the Robin we knew and Batman actually kind of has to take him under his wing, Batman has to grow and change. Yeah. And this is something I saw the critic uh, Matt Zollersite saying on Twitter the other day, and I totally agree. The thing that makes the Lego Batman movie so refreshing above all else is Batman learns something in the movie. He grows as a character. He has to become a better version of himself. And I think Batman stories often slide back into, he's already perfect, so fuck yeah, it. Yeah, it's the Mary Sue sort of problem. Yeah. Just like, yeah, he's, he's flawless, he, he can defeat any enemy, he's a genius, martial art master, billionaire. He doesn't have to have any problems other than his one tragic Bat story that like makes him like, ah, oh, like I'm, I'm so tortured, but really I'm a perfect person. It is like a huge crutch that Batman storytellers fall back on. Yeah, and you know, the best Batman stories of like this millennia so far are the ones that actually let him grow like the dark knight like batman arkham knight 
and yeah. things like that. But even some of those versions, like you go from the Dark Knight to the Dark Knight Rises, I don't know if Batman actually learns anything in the Dark Knight Rises. No. Because yeah. his arc is he has to get stronger to get out of the Bane cave and then go punch Bane. There's not much of an arc there. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, Lego Batman movie, it's a good Batman movie, it's a good Lego movie, and I think it is just, it's such an incredible shot across the bow at the live-action DC movies. And it really is, we're at a point where, okay, Lego Batman is, there are moments where it directly makes fun of the DC movies, like Suicide Squad and things like that, including a phenomenal Killer Croc joke that I'm not going to spoil, but you'll blink and you'll miss it, but it's phenomenal. Um, But you got that, Supergirl still loves making fun of Man of Steel, which is great. Definitely lose that. The Flash and Arrow, to various degrees, do that. So, like, all the other parts of the wider, like, DC televisual universe are making fun of the central piece... And that piece is still not aware of itself. It's very yeah. strange. So anyway. Yeah. Still on the Batman note, I was just thinking about this. It was, it's been a little bit, but, but like a month or so ago, just on a whim, I watched the Son of Batman DC animated movie that's on Netflix. Which is, I think it's actually a couple of years old at this point, but it was like past the point where I stopped watching most of those. Yeah. And that movie's really good. If, if you want some Batman stuff... And and haven't also like especially if you haven't seen anything that has Damien, who's Batman's son, the son of Batman in the movie, like he's a great character and that movie really nails him. And it's something that like I I'm really excited like 20 years from now when Damien Wayne is an old enough character that fucking mainstream Batman shit can start using him because it's he's a really great character. I didn't and know Batman had a son. He has he has a, he has had a son since like 2005 or something. I think, okay, wow. around the time that Morrison ran became. So yeah, like it's. Yeah, Damian Wayne's a really cool character. That DC animated movie is very good. Nice. It's on Netflix, so people can just watch it if you want. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, Batman's just in a weird phase where there's or all the DC stuff, frankly, where there's so many kind of arms of it. Yeah. But then there's that central, forward-facing. Yeah, like you know, the, the huge live mainstream, like heavily marketed one is you know super dour Ben Affleck, like like you know someone shat in his porridge kind of face. Batman is like, <laughs> come on, dude. Yeah, lighten well, up, like lighten up at least one percent, because it's like let's let's have like a smirk somewhere and not have it be smirking after you shot a criminal in the face. Like have it be smirking because you said a joke or something, or, 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 or someone said a joke to you. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Lego Batman, very good. Glad to have a fun Batman movie again. Yeah. And uh, if you like 1960s Batman as much as I do, this movie loves 1960s bad Batman and has some great jokes about it. So cool. one last enticing thing. So anyway, it's great. I've had a good DC weekend because. I, I did that, and then uh, on Sunday, or today is Sunday, yeah, earlier today, I caught up on uh, all the DC shows that I watched, so like I, last week's Supergirl and a couple weeks of The Flash, and it's like, yeah, I, it's easy to like focus on the bad DC movies, but it's like most of my diet with that kind of stuff is actually really good, like you got Lego Batman and you got these shows, and it's like, these are superheroes who actually enjoy saving people and smiling, yeah. I love it, it's great, it's good. And if you like the Martian Manhunter shout out in the Lego Batman movie... Hey, he is on Supergirl every fucking week, and this week's episode went hardcore with it. It's great. Great. Yeah. Fought some white Martians. It's good. Okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they can only actually have them in Martian form only so often because of budget. Yeah. It's but it's still cool. Show. Yeah. Anyway. So that's all good. You want to talk about uh, little John Wick? Let's talk about John the Wick. <clears throat> John Wick Chapter 2. Like I said, I saw this uh, Thursday night. They were doing these double features of John Wick 1 and 2. I don't usually necessarily go in for like the in-theater marathons, but that was one I was totally up for, and it was worth it, in part because Chapter 2, uh, I think, grows on the first film, but also like references it in some really interesting ways, so it was fun to see them back-to-back. But I had a blast. That movie... 
I was so excited for John Wick 2 because I loved the first one. I was I loved that this little action movie got a sequel in the first place. Yeah. Um, but even then, I was so not prepared for what this movie does in in so many directions, and I was so blown away by the end. And I almost want to start this conversation at the end first and then kind of go back. Okay. Because one of the things I realized watching John Wick 2, um, if you had asked me like after it ended, is that movie longer or shorter than the first film? I would have said, oh, it's got to be shorter. That flew by. And it's not. It's a good 20 minutes longer. It's a little over two hours long. But we got to like the end of the movie. And spoilers from here on out. And the end is John Wick is excommunicated from the continent. Excommunicado. Ian McShane is a national yeah. treasure. Anyway, he's excommunicado and he has to go on the run and the you know movie cuts to black. But I had literally no sense of how far we were in the movie at that point. And I thought, there might be another act or that's the end of the movie. And I was hoping it was the end of the movie because I'm like, that is such a perfect ending. And I've seen some people complain about it as sequel bait. And I don't think that at all. I think it's the natural, like almost... I don't want a John Wick 3 because I think this is such a perfect ending to his story. And I don't know, other than just killing him, what other ending there is to the story than this, which is like this great kind of ambiguous send-off where he like runs yeah. off into the sunset with his awesome dog who's really well trained in that it can run through Central Park with him and not run away. It's yeah, it, it, it's also, it's especially well trained considering if you like put together how much time <laughs> has passed between the two movies, which is like almost a none. He has had that dog for at most like maybe a week. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was listening to an interview with Keanu Reeves, and he said it's set five days after the first. Okay, yeah. the idea. So he's, he, he trained the shit out of that dog in those five I, days. I believe John Wick could do that. Sure, yeah. I, I believe that. But anyway, uh, but I think it was, part of it was that this movie just, I was so swept up in it, I never wanted to, like, check my watch. I never had any sense of, like, I wasn't thinking about it structurally of, like, are we in the third act yet or something like that. I was just along for the ride, and the movie has a pretty convoluted plot in some ways, but doesn't feel like it has that sequel problem of where that makes the movie bogged down or something. The movie is tight. I don't think it has an ounce of fat on it. It just moves. And you get to that final action sequence, and it's so exhilarating. And then the end of the movie is fairly quiet in a lot of ways and how it wraps stuff up. And I just... I think that's what hit me more than anything else is that the movie has so many moving pieces to it throughout. It's so many, you know, beautiful sights and haunting images and great action scenes. And then it ends on what I thought was a pretty provocative, evocative note of kind of re-questioning John Wick's place in the world, but also I think bringing some interesting themes to bear about, you know, this world of assassins as kind of this microcosm of society. And... Like everything right now, I can't help but compare it to the current situation of the United States. Sure, yeah. And it is kind of this weird accidental political parable where the story of John Wick 2 is John Wick gets involved with this dude who's really corrupt but is using the system to kind of rise in the system and take over the system. And because of the system, they have no tools to actually stop this guy. And so John Wick's ultimate action in this movie is just to say, fuck it, break the system, and basically sacrifice himself so that all of this can stay standing. And I don't know, maybe if Donald Trump did not exist, I wouldn't be thinking of how interesting that is as a story, but sadly he does. Sure, yeah. And so I was thinking of that on my way out of like, that movie resonated with me more than I thought it would. So that's kind of, I don't know, I'm going backwards from that, but yeah. that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I don't think I quite like sort of felt the political aspect of that so much. I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying that that's an element of the plot, but it didn't really have a lot of impact for me. Like for me, it was like the, the movie was... More just, I, I found, like, the aesthetic experience of the movie so compelling. In fact, like, like, if I have, like, one major criticism of the movie, it's that I wish 
in some elements of the plot and like the the structure of it, it could have differentiated itself a little bit more from John Wick One because there's a bit too much deja vu of like I'm out and I get pulled back in and, and like like have to like take down like this dude who's like doesn't quite realize what he's doing. Like I think there's too many sort of direct similarities to things that happened in John Wick One that like I kind of wish it had moved past some of those things. But the the overall sort of aesthetic quality of watching the movie and like the pacing and the movement and the direction and the choreography of the action scenes which is like really when you're watching an action movie the aesthetic experience is like the primal like in the primary one of like what you are going there for like i think john wick chapter two is like nearly unparalleled in like american action filmmaking like you said uh, at the top of this episode like mad max fury road is the one big exception but also John Wick Part 2 and John, John Wick Chapter 2 and Mad Max Fury Road are two very different kinds of action movies. And so it feels like they can exist side by side in that, like, you said, like, Mad Max Fury Road is the best, like, car chase action movie of, like, like this, like, decade for America. And John Wick Chapter 2 is the best, like, gunfighting action movie for this decade of American cinema. And, and it, 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 that aesthetic quality of it, and, and just, like, the... Just, like... Keanu Reeves in this movie is so fucking good and his presence as just like the action lead like obviously he was great in John Wick 1 but here I think he like even more sort of like comes into this role and is able to just have that presence on screen at all times that that character needs to have and 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 there's just like shots and scenes of this movie of him just like walking down a street that are so compelling of, of that his presence there and his sort of like physical acting is so strong and so subtle that it makes the quiet moments in the movie work really, really effectively in a way that, that other actors would not be able to pull off. And it's like, it's the one thing, one of the, one of the things that like Keanu Reeves does extraordinarily well that I think can be undersold as his qualities of an, as an actor. Absolutely. Because we went through that whole period in like the two thousands after the matrix where Keanu Reeves had a lot of bad roles, and I think people made fun of him as an actor. And I don't think the issue was with Keanu Reeves. I think the issue was with Hollywood not knowing how to use this guy. Because, frankly, he was an actor kind of out of time with Hollywood. Because Keanu Reeves either works well in kind of that Bill and Ted kind of comedy mode, or he is an old-fashioned action or, frankly, musical kind of lead, where he is an actor who is intensely physical in what he does, and he can carry a movie through that physicality, and he can do the choreography you ask of him you know alongside the stunt team yeah and that's a really really rare thing in Hollywood now and it basically took a movie like John Wick to bring that out in him and it's no coincidence John Wick 1 and 2 are directed by Chad Stahelski who is he was Keanu Reeves' stunt double on The Matrix he's the stunt lead on a lot of Hollywood movies and then finally got to direct these films so he's the rare action director who has like been in the trenches and knows how to do this stuff yeah. and so people made this comparison with John Wick 1 that it's kind of like a Gene Kelly musical via an action thing where you know when Gene Kelly made a musical like Singing in the Rain he knew how to do it because he was a singer and a dancer and he knew what needed to happen so he would have you know the long takes that are shot from far enough away that you can see the, the dancer full body and you can really do that and I think John Wick chapter 2 goes even further down that road than the first film because there are sequences in this movie where the camera just moves and moves and moves doesn't stop doesn't cut and the choreography is just positively balletic yeah. in what's going on. and it's a ballet of people shooting each other in the face yeah. but it is balletic like the scene I think of most intensely with that in this movie in terms of just pure choreography is the one in Rome after shit goes bad yeah. and I, that sequence like, the slow build-up to that haunting image in the middle, 
and then just shit goes bad and crazy. And the whole thing in the catacombs where he's going around and he gets he's got the little gun, then he's got the, the like M4, and then he's got the fucking shotgun. Yeah. And like culminating with that amazing moment where he's got the dude pinned down, runs out of ammo, reloads it by leveraging it on the dude, and then comes back and shoots him. And it's that kind of stuff where you can't do that without an actor like Keanu Reeves because you can't just have it be a stuntman or else there are certain shots you just can't do. Yeah. And it has to be someone who can sell that physically while also doing acting and getting that character across. And I think Keanu Reeves is actually a pretty unique actor in that sense in modern Hollywood. And I love that John Wick has come around to be a vehicle for him because otherwise I don't know if Hollywood would have known... What to do with him going forward. Because the Wachowskis did in a certain degree too. Uh, the Matrix is much more stylized. Yeah. But it's that same, I think, kind of reason they cast Keanu Reeves. Is because he can sell the physicality of a Neo. Um, but, you know, for, for this it's just it's a whole other level. And I, I think, you know, Keanu Reeves clearly brings out the best in Stileski. And he brings out the best in Keanu Reeves. So it's just this perfect marriage of, I think, the director and the actor and, and the people making this film. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's something where you get that sense of, we talked a little bit before the beginning of the podcast, uh, about like, that it, it feels more like a Hong Kong style action movie. And some of that of, of the director being, like, having history of being a stuntman and stuff like that. That also is, you know, that, that long tradition of Hong Kong movies, going back to, like, Bruce Lee and Sammo Hung and stuff, of martial artists slash stuntmen who, like, have done this stuff, like... You know, like in their real life, and then become directors like a Jackie Chan. Donnie Yen obviously is like the the most modern example, and, and they have a unique quality of being able to film and direct action because they do the action. And then in their case, they are also the main characters in their movies generally. And and it, like John Wick has that quality, and one of the qualities it shares is the creativity in the choreography, which is something in particular that American action movies tend to get very very wrong. And it's something that actually like. I commented on like very briefly in our Rogue One um, podcast where Donnie Yen's role in that movie, he has that one action scene like at the end of the first act or whatever where he just kind of beats down a bunch of stormtroopers and it like it was a little bit frustrating that you could tell that Donnie Yen did not shoot that scene because he would not have shot that scene that way. Like he would have come up with a more creative, inventive choreography and way to shoot that because that's what he does. And and so often I think American movies just sort of like go for a very easy sort of like spinning shot or just like tracking shot and don't like do a lot of good editing. They don't like come up with good ideas of like how do we move this fight from like this stage to this stage? How do we escalate this? And, and, it, and it's something that a lot of superhero movies have been played with for a long time where – you know, outside of stuff of like the Daredevil show on Netflix, most superhero action scenes are terrible because they don't have a good sense of how to get all these moving pieces together and film them in an interesting way and have it progress as an action scene. And John Wick just does it so well, and it does it with guns, and guns tend to be make for very dull action scenes in a sort of average action movie because all it is is like two guys standing across a room shooting at each other and here it's like no it's not just two guys shooting across a room shooting each other with pistols that have infinite bullets it's like john wick has to reload his gun and he like runs out of ammo he gets shot or he gets like shoved over and he has to go and plan out this whole thing and go like grab his assault rifle and use his assault rifle and when his assault rifle clip runs out of ammo he has to switch to his pistol really quickly to shoot another guy before he can reload his assault rifle. It's like going through all those steps and, and putting all like the sort of more realistic limitations on what someone can do with a gun 
leads to so much more interesting choreography that can lead to moments like what you pointed out where he runs out of ammo in his shotgun and so he pins a dude to the wall with his shotgun and keeps him there while he reloads the shotgun with the shotgun just like barrel pointed up against this dude's head and then shoots him. Which is a a little reference to something from the first film where he does that with a pistol but like they take it to a whole other level here. Yeah and it's just like in that like you said ballet-esque element of like the dance of having to manage all these things and reload his gun and then like switch between shooting people and doing hand-to-hand combat and just like his habit of he shoots a dude in the chest and then shoots it like to sort of like stop him and shoots him in the head to keep him down like that has like a pace and like a percussive element to the action scenes that has that sort of hong kong you know john woo or like hong kong like fist fighting kind of action movies it has that sort of sensibility to it which makes the action scenes such that like you could i could watch like that scene of the Coliseum in Rome, I could watch that endlessly. Like, I could, like, spend a whole day just watching that scene (laughs) on repeat because it's so good, it's so perfectly choreographed, it's so perfectly constructed and executed that it's just so exciting. You could just watch that for the rest of your life and die a happy man, you know? Absolutely. So we'll come back to some of the action stuff in a minute. Two things. One, the uh, sort of other progenitor of all this that the movie itself directly references is like the original guy to do this kind of thing is Buster Keaton. Yeah. And the movie actually starts with a Buster Keaton film being projected against a wall. I didn't quite, I don't think it's the general. I couldn't quite catch which one it is. But I love they start with that and then they pan down to the, the opening car chase, which is incredible yeah. and we'll talk about in a second. Um, so that's just another, like the movie is very aware of where it's getting its influences from. Yeah, absolutely. While also adding on to it. Like the thing you're talking about with the, uh, specifically what they call the gun foo in the movie sure, um, yeah. is so unique because it's it's built off things like Hong Kong action and the choreography of a Buster Keaton but no one's actually done that kind of action like John Wick does yeah you know with and it's the thing where we, we joke about how many people John Wick shoots in the head for that kind of action to work he has to shoot a lot of people in the head and it's not meant to be like taken literally and it's not like they revel in the gore of it or anything like it's amazing how undisturbing it is overall that he shoots that many people and you don't walk out of the theater and like vomit in a bucket or something Sure, yeah. because the movie keeps it at that kind of cartoonish rapid pace that works so you know I think it's so creative in that way but I want to go back to something you said at the beginning and talk about the story a little bit. Okay, yeah. Um, because you were saying, and I get this, that in some ways I think it has some superficial similarities to the way the first one runs. Yeah. But certainly, like, um, having watched both of the films back-to-back, like the way I did in that marathon, I was kind of primed, I think, to look for some of those things. And I actually think it's pretty interesting how the movie, I think, plays off of kind of our knowledge of the first movie and then I think in a lot of ways evolves past it, where, you know, this movie really is about the stupidity of that idea of the the hitman who retires and thinks he can get out of it. Yeah. And, you know, John Wick 1 kind of leaves that issue unresolved because he is on the verge of death. He decides to live again. He gets his new dog and he walks off into the sunset. That's a really good ending. Yeah. But I think John Wick 2 starts immediately with you know, one, that amazing opening, like, car action scene. I don't even know what to fucking call that. Car punching scene, basically. Yeah. And, you know, John Wick basically trying to tie up loose ends and all that. But then we get back into kind of the meat of things. And in some ways it starts out the same where someone spurns him and he sort of wants to get revenge. But what's so interesting, I think, about the structure of this movie in that it's very much predicated on the, like, silly, weird lore of this universe. Yeah. I was listening to uh, the Nerdist podcast. Uh, Keanu Reeves was on that. That's Chris Hardwick's podcast. And Chris Hardwick said to Keanu Reeves, 
John Wick is like if Harry Potter were about assassins. Because it's like this whole underground world that no yeah. one else knows exists, but the people in it can like get whatever they need anywhere they need it. It's very much like Harry Potter in that way. But because of that, the movie is also kind of this weird Terry Gilliam-esque, I don't know, like social satire, where it is this like structured world. Everyone has agreed to a pact. It is, it is a government in some ways where everyone has come together and said... These are the rules and we're going to follow them even though they are arbitrary. But those arbitrary rules are what's going to keep us sane. Yes, and it's what separates us from the animals. It very much. And, where it ta- and I love how they expand on that in this movie because it's one of the great things about the first John Wick is that they don't even really like draw attention to it in that movie. It's just this wonderful background element. Yeah. And then in John Wick 2... The whole story is predicated on one of those little clauses, which is that thing with the like little blood oath. And John Wick has to do what this guy wants. And it starts with John Wick trying... So the movie is literally bookended by John Wick breaking the rules. Because it starts with him saying, look, I'm out. I'm not going to do this. And realizing he can't be out because he's bound by these silly rules. And so everything he winds up doing is because he's trying to follow this, this crazy like structure they've made. And so it has this kind of satirical edge to it. Not in the like ha-ha funny, yeah. but I mean in the like, you know, Sarté, like satire kind of thing. Like the, the absurdist element of it. Yeah. Uh, all the way up until the end when John Wick realizes the only way he can finish this is to break the rules and shoot the dude in the head. And it is this kind of amazing conclusion because you like... John Wick and everyone else here has been conditioned to think these rules are sacrosanct. And then something happens that breaks them and it's a stunning kind of ending to the movie. So, I don't know, I think, uh, I totally see kind of, you know, some of the superficial similarities, but I just thought the movie, I think, is playing with those from the very beginning in interesting ways. And I think moves past it pretty quickly to kind of see John Wick in different settings than we would have seen him in the first one. Yeah, I think it's something that, like, I didn't have a huge problem with, and it was definitely something that near the end it, like, sort of faded away, but it does, like, I guess it sort of felt like in some ways this could have or maybe should have been the first John Wick movie of, like, it feels like they sort of worked through what John Wick needed to be in John Wick 1, and then, like, this is, like, the better version of that movie, and, like, in a weird way you could have just, like, in almost like an Evil Dead 2 kind of way, just like made this almost like it was the first movie and you could have done basically the same thing. Like you just need the audience to have a certain amount of knowledge of like this character in this world to make that like the opening of the movie like faster. And that's like the main thing it felt like it got from John Wick 1 to me. And I kind of, it, in some ways it's just almost sort of like, in, even though I really like John Wick 1 a lot, it sort of shined on some of the flaws that that first movie had and like how much better this movie handles some of that story stuff of like the ending in this movie is way more impactful and the way they handle that story of like how to, like what does it mean for a hitman to get out of this life and, and like and to get dragged back in? Because that's the same basic thing that John Wick 1 deals with. It just doesn't deal with it in nearly as interesting a way as John Wick 2 did. And the fact that they both are sort of like working through that question and just John Wick 2 does it way more successfully, kind of makes it a little less impactful than it could have been if it was like this was just the complete package, you know? I kind of get it. I mean, one of the things I think, though, that's so interesting is, and this is one of the terms I heard bandied about when John Wick 1 came out, John Wick 1 was kind of pitched to some people as like this existential action film where it's this guy who doesn't know what to live for, finds something to live for in the puppy, gets that taken from him, and all he has to live for is like the violence. And I think that's oversimplifying it in some ways, but it's a good way to describe that film. But, you know, I like the contrast between John Wick 1 where he is highly, highly motivated by personal reasons because he's just lost his wife and then the best setup for any revenge movie ever, he loses the dog. And that you can totally buy into him killing 100 people because that is unacceptable to kill a dog. Fuck you people. 
So anyway, um, so you have that and like this heavily personal motivation. And then I like that in John Wick 2, he's not even sure what his motivation is. And I think that becomes more interesting as the movie goes along because his motivation is sort of just... Sir, it's first it's like he's kind of pissed off but it winds up being kind of survival and then it winds up kind of being nothing in particular but everything um you know it's it's this it's very much a commentary on he got to that point where you know okay he got his life back he's got a new dog he's got all this stuff and yet it's still empty for him and then we start it over again and i think it's i i think it works as a sequel in that way to me interestingly sure. but i see what you're saying so all right, but anyway, and I love the whole progression of the story. I think it's got an inch, like my issue with John Wick One, if I have anything, is that movie has a rough third act. I think where the movie basically finish like it's, and this is how three act structure works: is that the end of the second act is where you resolve the main action, and then the third act is kind of a twist on that action. Yeah, um, John Wick just makes it a little too apparent where he kills the guy he wants to kill at the end of the second act, and then they kind of have to remanufacture a thing for him to do in the third act. And so the third act doesn't feel as motivated as the first two. Yeah, I agree. John Wick 2 doesn't have that problem at all. No. Because you start with kind of each act is its own sort of separate thing in terms of what he's trying to accomplish. And it gets crazier yeah. and crazier. But they do a good job of setting up at the very beginning. What he really wants to do is plug this one motherfucker. Yes. But to do that, he has to go through these steps. And so it yeah. does. it has a much more satisfying structure to it because he's accomplishing the steps along the way, but you have that overall goal stays the same from the beginning of the movie as it is when he finishes it at the end. And so it, it has a much more tight structure to it, which helps make the action scenes feel a lot more motivated, which is my, like you said, like with you, my main issue with John Wick 1 is that that third act doesn't have as strong as a tight plotting, and so the action scenes at the end of that movie don't feel as strong as the action scenes in the middle part of the movie to me. Yeah, and in fact, the action scenes in this movie only get more motivated as they yeah. go along. And it's a crazy thing where I think the opening action sequence in this movie is an instant classic. It's phenomenal. I think it's better than any individual action scene in the first movie. And the yeah. first, that's saying something, because that first movie, like that fight in the nightclub, holy shit. Yeah. But I think the first, the, the car foo scene at the beginning of this movie, unbelievable. And it only gets better from there. Like, every action sequence, I think, kind of one-ups the one before it, either in choreography, or in cinematography, or in use of color, yeah. or just in sheer, like, just, like, Lynchian Hall of Mirrors craziness at the end. And I just think each one is so different and distinct from one another and have their own strengths and weaknesses, not weaknesses, just different strengths. Yeah. And as you say, that motivation kind of becomes stronger and stronger in weird ways. And I think the, the action scenes also reflect... Where John Wick's head is at in each of them. Because if you like look at the first one, the big car scene, he's just pissed off because this dude stole his car. Yeah. And he wants his, and he's just mad for a lot of good reasons. And so that is just kind of a furious action scene. And then the one in Rome has this long, just haunting interlude with that woman who he doesn't want to kill, but he has to because of these silly rules. And she winds up doing it herself, which leads to this beautiful haunting image that we'll talk about yeah. later. But then it erupts into this violence, and that one feels the most gratuitous, because it is. John Wick doesn't want to be doing this. He just wants to get out of there. Yeah. And he has to kill all these people that we don't know to get out of there. But, that, and, but that's also the one that he has planned for. Yes. And that, that's one of the best parts of the movie, is this long sequence of him visiting all these people, yep. and it's this fantastic montage intercut of him with like the gun dude, and the map dude, and the suit dude, and getting everything organized together. Yeah. So that then it's almost like Seven Samurai-esque of like planning everything out, and then you get to see it executed in, in magnificent fashion. Yep. And then there's the kind of the big one in the middle where you have all the assassins coming after him. And that's just John Wick trying to survive. So that's the one where he is most kind of on edge because he almost keeps losing 
but he winds up pulling through again and again. And I love the way that one's cut, where it's yeah. like it's multiple action sequences montaged together. I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty unique in my experience. Yeah, and then there is the final action scene, which to me is the best thing in the movie because of the cinematography in the artistic hall of mirrors thing, yeah. where you have it's just it it's. We're going to talk about Gravity Rush 2 later and the way that game descends well into surrealism. And this movie also has this kind of descent at that point into this surrealist imagery. But in an action, it's, I've never seen anything like it. But again, it's very much in John Wick's point of view because it's all these like refracted images of himself and the other guy. And like, how do you actually cut through this to get to the ultimate goal? And then, you know, you have that very stark final scene where he just pops the guy in the head. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the one thing I really like about that Hall of Mirrors scene is that, like, you know, Hall of Mirrors is something that is used in movies all the fucking time. Like, it's like, it's, you know, like the end of Enter the Dragon is in the Hall of Mirrors. The one thing I really, really love about the John Wick one is that at no point in that action scene does it ever really feel like the mirrors are a hindrance to John Wick at all. Like, it never, like, not even at the beginning, because it's like, usually it tends to be like, oh, maybe at the beginning the protagonist is like, oh, I don't know where they are, and the villain is like, seems like omnipresent and I can't figure out where they are. And this is like, it just feels like, nope, John Wick, like, he doesn't quite know where this dude is, but John Wick, like, is immediately knows how to take advantage of this Hall of Mirrors thing and is not going to be tricked by it. Like, he's going to use it to trick other people, and I love that. I love that at no point is he, like, fooled by it at all. It just immediately turns it to his advantage, and that's something that I've never seen one of those scenes do, is it doesn't even play with the idea of it, it, it like, stopping him, because he's already, he's already in that spot, you know? He's already there, he's already focused, he has no fucking doubts, so he doesn't need to be confused by the, the images in the mirror. He knows exactly what he needs to do and exactly what he wants to do, and he's just going to go fucking do it. Yep. It is this weird thing that John Wick does so well in that they've created this kind of, you know, super-powered creation in John Wick. Yeah. And that he's better than everybody. And yet, through two movies, they still, and more and more in the second, manage to get real tension out of the mm -hmm. action. And it's that's a hard thing to do when you have a character who is, you know, sort of super-powered better than everyone else. How do you create an effective action sequence around him? And the John Wick movies are just so inventive in knowing how to do that in that... If you do it right, that raises the stakes in a weird way rather than lowering them. Yeah, you know? like, like because he, he gets hurt and he's injured in, like, all those fight scenes. It had, very much feels like the Daredevil show of just, like, every single fight ends with him, like, bloody beaten. Just like, oh, fuck. Oh, holy shit. I'm going to feel that in the morning. It's yeah. got that kind of sense to it. But you never, but he never feels weak because of that. He feels stronger because of it. Because he feels all that pain and he goes through all that shit and he can still move past it. And so he doesn't have a, like, you know, what a, like a bad Batman story to go back to Lego Batman can do. Which is just, like, make him feel completely invincible. And, like, the, nobody can stand up to him at all. And nobody can even hurt him. Like, that makes it, like, kind of bullshit. Yeah. And it, what makes it terrifying is when you can hurt him, but you can't stop him. It's actually one of the interesting things I wanted to say about John Wick 2. You know, I wasn't, I had no idea how this movie would end. I didn't know if they even wanted to make a third one or anything. Yeah. And so I was, I went through a lot of the movie thinking, I don't know if he's going to survive this movie. Yeah. And did. I so rarely feel that in an action movie, let alone a sequel. But I really got to the point of like, I wonder if he kind of has to die because I don't know how even John Wick gets out of some of these scenarios. Yeah, like I've, when you we got to like the last scene of the movie, at first I thought he was going to just get shot because it, it looked very similar to 
the end of John Wick 1 where the one lady who breaks yeah. the rules of the Continental like is lured to that one spot and then is just shot from like every single direction by those guys like I thought that was just what was going to happen to him and like it was like up to that moment it just felt like he could fucking die at any second at this point in this movie and that's just that's a very rare thing for an action movie you don't yeah. go watch a Die Hard sequel and think John McClane is ever in real danger yeah exactly so they do that very well um that Hall of Mirrors scene, just while we're close to it, uh, and it's not even really accurate to call it a Hall of Mirrors because it like echoes some of those images, but it's actually a very unique take on that. Yeah. And that it's like this museum art piece that they're moving through, and it's all about the movement of it, not about the mirrors refracting things as much. But that's the scene where when I reference Skyfall, there's that one scene in Skyfall, and that's, that's a movie shot by fucking Roger Deakins, one of the best living cinematographers, and so it's really inventive. But one of those is it's where James Bond gets to the top of that tower in Hong Kong, and he's got to take this guy out, and... They're, on, they're in this like you know, high-rise building, and so there's these windows. And from outside, there's like this video ad playing. Yeah. And so the image gets refracted through the window, and like the light is shining on them. And there's this long take as they fight, and it's this wonderful, like, surreal piece of imagery. I thought like, that was my point of reference, and that the, the Hall of Mirrors scene in John Wick is like that, done for like 10 fucking minutes with a much more complex set of choreography along yeah. with it. Because it's not just that there's the mirrors and there's the multiple players in that scene and John Wick at the center of it. There's also, they're in this like kind of gaudy art place. So there's all these lights and colors. And, and like, like just weird abstract modern art figures just in the yeah. background and shit. So like the amount of like imagery and movement and form going on in the cinematography there is just masterful. Because like through a lot of the movie I was thinking to myself you know, this is a visually just beautiful, brilliant movie and the cinematography is no doubt good but I would say the big you know, like um, achievements of this movie are in production design and choreography, less so maybe in the cinematography. But then you get there, that is absolutely a feat of cinematography. Yeah. Like, the production design, definitely. But to be able to capture and, like, really make, um, you know, surreally coherent the amount of form and imagery and color going on in that scene, along with the choreography, which remains very complex, it's it's out of this world. Yeah. And it's just really impressive. And again... That's, you know, I think in some ways the aesthetic peak of the movie, but it's not an outlier for the film, because there's so many just amazing sets and images that happen during this film. Yeah, one of my favorite shots in the movie is at the very beginning when he's back in his home, and it's like raining outside, and there's just like water streaming down the glass, and the water, and the light is shining through the water onto the wall, but like, since the light is being refracted by the water, the light is waving on the wall, Mm -hmm. and John Wick is just sort of like sitting there slumped against the wall. Like, that's a really good shot that also like feels like a skyfall kind of shot to me. Well, it's the kind of thing where, and clearly they probably had a bigger budget with this movie, so you can do more of this. You know, John Wick 1 is a lot of shooting on like city streets and things like that. This movie, they clearly had the budget and the time to maybe go a little more in depth with their shots. But it's that level of care that any great movie, not just an action movie, has of saying... We're going to make every shot in this movie the most interesting version of itself. Yeah. We're not going to just say it's good enough to have like a two shot here and shot reverse shot and that's it. They never go with kind of that easy with it. There's always something interesting going on in the imagery. Even something as simple as like when um, Lawrence Fishburne, that scene near the end where he and, and Keanu Reeves are talking just like in the basement and stuff. There's just interesting things with like depth of focus and pull focus and things like that. And it's just, it's constantly just a visual feast. And seeing this back to back with John Wick on like the same big theater screen, John Wick 1, very well shot. But seeing that jump is just like, this is what I love. I love seeing a filmmaker and, and a, t- a filmmaking team being able to like take that raw talent and just soar with it. And that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Yeah. But um, let's talk about some of those action scenes individually. Okay. Because, okay, that first scene 
holy shit. Like, yeah. that is that is, that is a good start to a fucking movie. Uh-huh, yeah. It, it, it definitely, like, from, like, the weird sort of, like, Buster Keaton movie just sort of conspicuously just being projected onto a wall in New York City for reasons we will never discover why someone is fucking just, like, beaming a Buster Keaton movie at someone's apartment building. But, yeah, like, that shot then panning down to the car coming in, like, yeah, like... From second one, it just, like, hits the ground running in a way that's really exciting. And I also love that that opening scene is very different from the other action scenes in the movie because it involves the car so much. Well, and, and there's no other car action scene in the whole film. There's, and there's no car action scenes in John Wick 1. Yeah. But there's sort of a car chase at the end, but that's not the focus of the scene. And there's the scene at the beginning of John Wick where he drives his Mustang around, but that's not an action scene, that's just a character scene. But here it's actual... But it's this wonderful mix where it's... And that one is the most Keaton-esque because it is... And, and so in some ways the most Hong Kong-esque because it is about this kind of body comedy in some ways where the car... There's that whole scene where the car, you know, he tries to get it out and then it gets hit by absolutely fucking everything and he comes back in and then it's he is out of the car and he's doing stuff and then he's back in the car and he's under cars and he's... It's, it's incredible. Yeah, like the, the, the part where he's like in his car after the door has been shoved off and something like another car rams his car and he just flops out. Is, <laughs> it's a really great shot. Because yeah. it does, there's a lot of the movie has a, a really good sense of humor to it, like John Wick 1 did also, even when it's dealing with darker stuff. There are moments that are really funny that are like ex- like excessive and exaggerated on purpose, like him just like <laughs> falling out of the car because it's like, why the fuck are you even trying to get into this goddamn car when it's just so completely destroyed and there are no doors on it? There's no point in you being in this fucking car anymore. Like, yeah. it, it, it definitely pushes that point of the car getting destroyed to the point of absurdity and then goes, like, five steps beyond that. Absolutely, which is the, the mark of a great action scene like that. But there's so many great things happen there. It's one of those scenes where you see what Keanu Reeves brings to this. Because I think a lesser actor of this style, you would watch that and be more aware of the oh my god, how is this guy surviving it? But he just is able to kind of project both the vulnerability of like, this clearly hurts, but he's still able to kind of stand and deal with it. And that's what sells an outrageous action scene like that. So all of that is great. I love how it kind of, it's tied to the first movie that he's kind of finishing off everything from that. And then, you know, of course, there's the great payoff to all that joke, which is that he wants, he brings the car back and there's the scene with John Leguizamo. But what really motivates that scene and, like, anchors it in the film, and this is one of those things that I think is so continually smart about the John Wick movies is bringing it back to character, is that why he actually wanted the car is it had that car from his wife in it. Yeah. And you totally, if you've seen John Wick 1, you know why he would go through hell to get that card back. Yeah. And so that's just a really good, like, because I think... There's there's definitely value in the joke of he likes his Mustang and wants it back even if it's totally beat up. But I think it's both funnier and it works more if there's that emotional hook to it. And yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. You get that when he gets back to the house. Um, but that, that whole first scene just is so creative. The, the setting of that warehouse but also the stuff around it. Just, I was watching that and I'm like, oh man, this movie must have peaked early. There's no way they're going to get to do better than that. And they do. <laughs> One of my other favorite parts of that scene is, again, like where the John, John Wick 2 has a great sense of humor, is when it keeps on cutting to the, the Russian officer guy <laughs> in his office with like just more and more ridiculous screams of pain from the warehouse like leaking in and gunshot sounds and stuff. He's just like staring basically right at the camera with this haunted expression listening to fucking the Grim Reaper coming at his door, you know? Pretty much, yeah. It's really good. And Keanu breaks down the door and then just pours them both a shot of vodka. Yeah. yeah. If Keanu Reeves poured me a shot of vodka like that, I think I'd shit my pants. Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, pretty great stuff. And then you have some of the setup and everything. Uh, the house blowing up scene isn't really an action scene, which I think is good because 
they kind of did that in the first movie. So yeah. they, they don't necessarily repeat that. Oh, it's sad he loses his house because that house is a cool set. Yeah. If nothing else. Again, another place where it has a great sense of humor is he when he, he goes to his basement where he's destroyed his garage to yes. get his stash and he puts all his stash in and then he goes and he cements all of it over and as soon as he finishes that, the fucking doorbell rings. It's yeah. really good. Because it's both, it's both really funny because of like how it's set up, but then it all is also like a really potent, dramatic moment of, yeah, dude, you're not getting out. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You're not like out of this life. Like, yeah, you, it's, you it's, can't get out. It's good visual allegorical storytelling of yeah. he has this stuff in his basement. He thinks he can sand over, and he literally cannot. Yeah, and it's just you can get. That's one of the things I think John Wick that both movies do is. You know, they are not thematically the most complex films in the world, but what themes they do impart are never done through, like, formal exposition. Or, like, John Wick saying, I feel sad because I lost my wife, or yeah. something like that. It just, it's lived through the movie, through the visuals, through the characters' motivations. It's good visual storytelling. Yeah. So, which I think is what you were getting at there. So, then he goes to Italy. We see John Wick abroad. And we have that great montage you were talking about where we just get a bunch of great character actors doing different things as John Wick uh, pays them for their services. Yeah. Everyone talks in like weird sort of like talking around like, oh, what do you like? What do you need for the night, sir? And then yes. like, oh, I need something flashy. I like all like the really sort of hammy dialogue there is really well done. Great. It's it's. You always know it's a good action hero when he looks cool being fitted for a suit. Yeah. Which he got here, which is great. Uh, I love that he's got the new suit that has, like, the bulletproof stuff in it. And yeah, and just... all the scenes in the movie later where he's, like, using it as cover is really smart. Like, it's a good, ridiculous thing. But, like, the fact it's, it's one of the things where the movie establishes these rules and it, like, lives by them. And, like, it's... You know, whether it's he has to reload his gun or that his jacket is bulletproof, so... But the jacket is the only thing that's bulletproof, so he needs to hide his head behind it. Like, right. it, it lives by those rules in a way that's really good because it makes the mood, the action convincing. Yeah, you can be as cartoony as you want as long as it's internally consistent. Exactly. And it is here. There's there's no moment where you're like, that doesn't seem realistic by the rules of this movie. Like, yeah, no, it exactly. All... Like, you, you said that the jacket is bulletproof, so I will accept the jacket is bulletproof, but when he gets shot where the jacket is not... He gets fucking shot. Yeah. But then when the Italy stuff really gets underway, where he's going through the catacombs and everything, um, watching the two movies back-to-back, there's this one moment in John Wick 1 that I always find particularly interesting, where it's the nightclub scene uh, from that movie, the nightclub shootout, which is yeah. the best scene in that movie, I think, because it does a lot of cool stuff with color, but it also has this like weird EDM music on the soundtrack, like diegetic music. And so it's got this very ethereal kind of sense to it. And at the beginning of that scene, John Wick is just going around like taking out the guards. And there's this one guard he has to like stab in the heart, like to the guy's face. Yeah. And he's like got his hand over the guy's mouth, stabs him in the heart, and then like goes down with the guy as the guy slides down the wall. And John Wick is like looking in his eyes, and like the music is kind of swelling at that moment. And it's this weird, very like ethereal aesthetic moment in the in a film that otherwise you wouldn't expect to have that. And I think from the Italy part onwards, John Wick Two is like the full movie version of that moment to me. Because it's yeah. got a lot of those moments that... I don't even know if you're meant to take them literally, but they're just these beautiful kind of poetic images, again, with a guy killing a bunch of people. But it's weird that they can marry those. And I think the Italy scene is full of those, none more clearly than when, obviously, he gets into the room with the woman he has to kill, Gianna, and she realizes what he's there for, and she gets in the bathtub, like, naked, but the movie also isn't, like, objectifying her. It doesn't have, no, like, this yeah. close-up on her breasts or something. And she takes those things out of her hair that turn out to be knives and slits her wrists and like falls into the tub. And it's this tableau. It's like a big painting or something. 
And so it's technically like a, a much more graphic image than anything else in John Wick, but it doesn't come across that way because it has this heightened like painting esque quality to yeah. it that I found just fascinating. I mean, it's definitely it's it sort of like mimics uh, the stuff that you see early in the movie and then like later in the movie in the the art museum where uh, the the villain dude is like looking at that one painting and there's a lot of renaissance sort of artwork in the background and that image of her with her wrist slit and like in the bath has a very sort of like renaissance quality to it yeah but yeah it's yeah it's it's a and just like that whole scene is great in the way of like 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 both John Wick 1 and John Wick 2 did such a great job of establishing characters very naturally through their dialogue and establishing who they are so quickly and they do that really great with her character and her like sort of like weird sort of like amicable relationship with John and their sort of like positioning and the way he just sort of like appears in that scene out of nowhere in the mirror like all that staging is so great and it's so sort of like dramatically potent it's that it's like you said earlier they don't ever just go for, like, an easy shot or easy framing in this movie. They always try to, like, look at something and think about what is the most interesting way to do this, both visually and then in terms of the story, like, him just shooting her is the boring thing to do. Like, her deciding, like, well, I know this is John Wick. This is, like, the best assassin in the world. There's no way I'm surviving. So instead, I'm just going to go out on my own terms. Like, that's a really interesting, surprising way for that scene to go, which is, like, a scene that you can see in a billion different action movies, and it will usually end with the dude shoots her, or or she doesn't die at all. It either will go one of those two ways, and they're, like, no, there's, like, a third, more interesting narrative way for the scene to go, and they went with that way. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic, you know, archetypal huntsman scene where the huntsman goes to Snow White in the woods and can't kill her. Yeah. Is how that would usually go. But this is if Snow White slit her wrists or something, which would be a great Disney movie. Yeah, I, you uh, know, if, if Disney wants to go for that hard R rating, like yeah. chase the Deadpool money, like that's how you do it. Indeed. That's Snow White and the Huntsman 3. Yeah. No, anyway. Um, I don't think those were made by Disney. Oh, well. Anyway, but yeah. And that that scene also, because of that like strong imagery and the way, as you say, how naturalistically that scene plays out between them, it also helps build, I think, the story that the film is building to, which is all these characters living under these rules. And they're never clearly explained to us, but because the characters clearly have such a strong reaction to them, that is conveyed to the audience. So... That is also a scene that in some way really sets up the stakes and helps us understand what John is going through because this woman, all she has to hear about is like the blood oath and this thing and she gets it and we understand how in this weird assassin world how serious all of that is. Yeah. So it's very interesting. This is also where I started to realize how good the production design in this movie is because those sets in yeah, Rome... Yeah, set is really good. Holy crap. I would love to just be on set and like look at some of that because it's just like beautiful architecture and the way it like... It's built for, you know, good architectural cinematography of, you know, your different parts of the image and everything. And, of course, there's much more to it than that because there's the whole concert venue and the catacombs and just so many interesting places for all this action to take place. Yeah. This is also the scene in the movie where, like, all that stuff of, like, the production design and, and the scene with her in the, the bath and all that just, just felt like a... Man, this would with this would be a great like first level for Hitman season two, huh? <laughs> like this is so like the weird concert in this like Colosseum area in Rome, and like but with like all the guards and this woman like running the thing in the back with her like secret room that she goes into, and that's where you go kill her. Like this is just like I want to fucking play like the John Wick two Hitman DLC. Goddamn it! And, and from a different perspective, while John Wick is different from Hitman in a lot of ways. These movies definitely make a, the prospect of a Hitman movie seem even more useless because it's exactly, like, yeah. you're not going to do it better than basically what they do with John Wick. Yeah. Which it has that same kind of balance between the serious and the silly. 
And, you know, probably if you wanted to do it right, yeah, Agent 47 would shoot a lot of people in the face. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Totally. Because you'd need to action it up a bit for Hollywood. You couldn't have him just, like, hiding in a closet for 15 minutes waiting for a waiter to come into this room where he's, like, turned the fucking sink to overflow. (laughs) And then he, like, goes and he knocks him out and, like, puts his clothes on for, like, five minutes and puts him in the closet. That 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 would be a very slow Hitman movie. That would be great. If they made, like, an accurate, faithful Hitman movie, it would be 90 minutes long and he'd kill one target. Exactly, yeah. But no. And also, like, the other thing, like, if they really did a Hitman movie right, you'd probably just cast Keanu Reeves as Agent 47. Sure, yeah. I don't know what other actor in Hollywood could actually do that mm-hmm. <laughs> in retrospect. But anyway, so that's all great. This is also where we meet the assassin played by Common. Yeah. Um, which continues, like, this is something throughout the movie. The movie also, like, and the, the first one did this beautifully, and the second one follows up on it, where any, like, part in the movie, like, that's mildly significant, they get an interesting actor for. Yeah. And sometimes they're, like, really notable, like, you know, character actors, like an Ian McShane, who's been around forever, or Lance Reddick, who you recognize from a million different things as the hotel concierge. Yeah. But I like also seeing Common, who you don't necessarily expect to see in that kind of role, but also, like, he's not just there because he can do action stuff. He has some really interesting, like, a presence with John Wick that is very funny and, and also interesting at different points. Yeah, no, yeah, both this movie and John Wick 1 are, like, a series of you being like, where have I seen that guy? Like, what movie have I seen that guy in? I saw him in a movie, like, two weeks ago. Yeah. It definitely is that kind of movie where, like, like you said, every single, even, like, a relatively minor role is casted for, like, an interesting actor. Yeah, and, and sometimes there's some good discoveries in these, too, because, like, there's the... Uh, the bad guy's like henchwoman uh, is played by this uh, the one who doesn't talk but she yeah. has a sign language, which continues the amazing joke of John Wick being a polyglot who can speak literally any language yeah. into, up to and including sign language, which is great. Yeah. Um, but that's a, an actress named Ruby Rose who I had heard of but hadn't seen before. I guess she's on Orange Is the New Black. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but she's I, she's I guess she's an interesting person. I was reading about her, but she's really good in this. Like I really liked her presence as like. This action star who doesn't talk but has like a lot of personality. Yeah, like she's a really good enforcer kind of character of, of yeah. like like the when you have like an action movie where the main villain can't be the like primary sort of physical threat and they always have like the the, the enforcer character. She's a really interesting one of those. She's a phenomenal James Bond villain. Exactly. Yeah. Like you just, just she's not a James Bond movie. Yeah, she's like what an, a modern odd job would be. I think exactly. Yeah, odd job is is that example from that movie. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and it is you know there's the Lawrence Fishburne scenes later, which I think are really fun. Yeah. It's I was when we got there, I'm like I'm kind of surprised Lawrence Fishburne wasn't already in John Wick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it does like he's such the perfect actor for this, not just because of the Matrix connection, but he's that kind of character actor who you want in this movie and. Oh, he has some good line readings in this. Yeah, another instance where it feels like I the scene where he sort of just explains his relationship to John, and like John Wick doesn't really know that like he has this relationship to this guy. It seems like he's not totally aware of like, oh, this is a guy I almost killed back when I was being an assassin. I just know him as this like informant dude who operates like the homeless like network in this city. And, like, that scene is really good, again, of just, like, establishing these character relationships through dialogue in a way that doesn't feel overly exposition-y. It's it's just, it's, it keeps the pace of the movie up in a really great way. Yeah, it's a great reminder, not that we need it, that A, Lawrence Fishburne is a great actor. Yes. And B, he and Keanu Reeves have genuinely very good chemistry, Uh and I want them to do more stuff together, because it made me very nostalgic for their scenes in The Matrix. Yeah. So it's the worst thing about the third Matrix is that those characters share no screen time together. Uh-huh. They separate them. It's like, no, it's Morpheus and Neo. You don't do that. Yeah, like they are the two characters from the Matrix movie. Like it's them and Agent Smith. You just want to see them all together. Yeah. Just like doing weird like action shit together. Yeah. So anyway, this was good. 
We got Lawrence Fishburne saying, somebody please get this guy a gun. Yeah. Great line. And then releasing pigeons because I, I love that image. It's yeah, just he's good. just this crazy pigeon man on this rooftop. <laughs> pigeons with microchips. It's wonderful. I love, again, they don't explain anything about what that guy actually does, but you like pick up little bits and pieces of it. But then other things you're like, I don't know why the pigeons have microchips, but it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I love it. I, I like that the assassins seem to have like 500 different ways of communicating with each other. That like whether it's like through like personal emissary or pigeons with microchips or fucking you call into some weird fucking like payphone service where like a switch lady switches your lines and like goes up on like an old school CRT like green screen that like types this in and then you get it like on your fucking smartphone. It's like. What, they're using like technology that's like 50 years old, 200 years old, and completely modern all at the same time. It's the best kind of world building in that you're often kind of at a loss for what literally is going on with these yeah. things. But the movie feels so confident in its world, like you just go with it because this is clearly a fully fleshed out world, even if we're seeing by design a sliver of it. Yeah. That's the best kind of world building, and they just nail it consistently. You know, like that... I love, I mean, one of the best action scenes is, is later in the movie when Common comes after John Wick. Yeah. And they have this big fight, and there's the whole thing where they're walking on the subway, casually firing. Yeah, like, that's John. another movie, or another scene where the movie has, like, really great sense of humor, is they're both just like, pew, 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 and, like, walking in this crowd of people just sort of casually trying to shoot at each other without anyone noticing them. But it's like, you know, like... Silencers make guns somewhat quieter. Everyone in that fucking room would know immediately if someone fired a gun with a silencer on it. But fuck it, like silencers are perfect in this universe. I will accept it. Sure, and it like that. Just that fight between them like builds and builds. There's the whole thing on the subway and all this stuff. Maybe that's later, but I know there's one part where they are fighting and they wind up back in the Italian continental. I guess that's yeah. the end of the Rome sequence. Yeah, there's yeah, two that's, different scenes. Yeah. But um, I kind of they blurred together. But there's a whole scene where they're they they they're fighting and they roll into the continental together and then they're like, oh shit, we can't do this. And they have a drink together. And it's just really, again good world and character building. And then it very heavily motivates the scene I was talking about before on the subway and everything. That again is one of those scenes where you're like I don't know if John Wick makes it out of this. Yeah. And and he does by like the skin of his teeth with that thing where and it's one he does this with multiple people in the movie where he does something to them that is lethal, but you don't know if they're dead. Like he doesn't shoot them in the head. Yeah. Like, with, with Common, he, like, puts the knife in his artery and says, if you remove that, you're dead. And maybe Common could get medical attention. I don't know. There's some good doctors in this universe. Yeah. And the same with the, uh, the Ruby Rose character, the assassin, the silent assassin later. You don't technically see him, like, do a kill shot on her. Yeah. It's the same thing of, like, when he's talking to Lawrence Fishburne's character. Like, he did the same thing to him, and he survived with that scar on his neck. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely leaves that weird hole open where like apparently like if he respects someone just enough and thinks he doesn't need to kill them he will like give them this weird potential out that is still like really cool for him to do as an assassin he doesn't just yeah like he doesn't just spare people willy-nilly like he will basically kill you but if he just kind of likes you he'll leave like this like <laughs> 0.01% chance that you might survive this but you are going to be so fucked up by this you're never going to go after him after it and, you know, I hadn't even drawn that thematic connection, but you're so right. It is the Lawrence Fishburne. That's why he has that speech, because yeah. he sets those things up, and it's... Well, the common thing has already happened, and then we're setting up the thing with the, the other assassin. So, that's again, that's really good thematizing of things, because you're not drawing explicit attention to those things. Yeah. And if they do John Wick 3, where he's in this presumably impossible situation, that could be a great way to bring some of those characters back, of something like that. Yeah. So, it's it, yeah, it's really interesting how they handle all of that. 
Um, and then we get, like I said, that whole montage, and the common thing is kind of a part of this, where all those different assassins are coming out after him. And I love just the different kinds of action scenes they're cutting together, where, like, one of them is he's fighting the really big dude. Yeah, the sumo and, guy. And some he's just being pressed by all these different guys with guns, and it's just, there's so many creative things going on with that. Yeah. No, it is like, it's just like every single action scene in the movie is different from every other action scene in the movie. Yeah. Like, it has different stakes, and it's like in a very different setting, and the sorts of actions he's taking are very different. It's like either he has a shotgun, or he only has his pistol, or he doesn't have anything, he just has his knife, or he has a pistol that only has seven shots. It's like, oh, that's great. It, is, it is always playing with what does John Wick have available to him, and like, how does he get out of the situation with it? And so none of the fight scenes feel like, oh, this is just another scene where he's shooting people. It's, he, it's another scene where he's shooting people, but he's shooting them in very different circumstances. And see, even just explaining this, we've already gotten up to like the last scene of the movie, yeah. because yeah, Lawrence Fishburne gives him the gun with seven shots, and then he goes off to try to kill the guy. And again, like explaining it here, I can like logically see how that movie, the movie gets out to two hours long, but just the f- experience of it, and because it's so you know, set up, knock down, boom, 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 boom yeah. throughout. I just, you get to that last scene and it's so breathless throughout. It really felt shorter than it was where I was really, I got there and I'm like, am I at the end of the movie or the end of the second act? I don't know. And I'm glad it is with the way it is, but it yeah. was just like, this could go anywhere. I have no idea. That's, that's so rare to yeah. see these days. Um, because usually you get to the end of a, even a movie I really like and you're like, this is great, but I'm ready for it to end. Uh-huh. I didn't feel that here. Yeah, me too. So yeah, you get the whole Hall of Mirrors scene we talked about. It's great. And boy, do I fucking love the way this movie resolves itself. Uh-huh. Where he follows the dude back to the Continental. The dude is all smug, like, you can, I'm just going to stay here forever. They got all this good food, whatever. And you have Ian McShane seeing that John Wick is genuinely pissed. And he's like, John? John? And Jonathan. he just, bang. Yeah. And that is a Yakuza scene. Yes. That, yeah. is, a so, scene I mean, like that a is like something that like could have happened in Yakuza 0. I mean, that is multiple beat Takeshi movies resolved that way. Yeah. And it's why I actually thought he was going to get killed at the end of the movie, because they resolve that way, and then either Beat Takeshi gets killed, or he pops himself in the head. Yeah. That, like, there's a lot of different Beat Takeshi movies. And so, yeah, he just shoots the guy, and it has such impact, because they've done such a good job building this world, and, like, John Wick just realizing, like, there is literally no other way out. Fuck it. Yeah, like, fuck this guy. Like, yeah. It's one of the things where the movie does such a good job of making you want to see that dude get shot in the head, that when that happens, you're like... Fucking yeah! Like I don't like. Obviously, this was a like a big decision for you to make, and you're probably going to die from this, John Wick. But fucking fuck that guy! Yeah, it's like it was. It was something where you know, watching that movie while I was playing and getting near the end of Yakuza Zero, it was a like the experience where both of the things built each other up because they both had an element of like. Just fucking fuck this guy. This guy is a fucking dick. I want to see him get shot in the head or kicked in the head or maybe both. And I got a lot of that experience. It was a very gratifying weekend I had. It, it's it, And this is definitely part of the like Asian cinema DNA in John Wick's body. Yeah. Is that you know American action movies don't allow themselves to resolve that simply. Uh-huh. But that kind of simplicity is also power. It's dramatic yeah. power. And it just is a huge kick to end the movie on. Because the stakes have been raised to a level where that action has this like visceral payoff but also clear consequences. And so then the actual kind of epilogue of the movie where he goes to Central Park and he's talking to Ian McShane and, you know, you think maybe he's going to get killed and Ian McShane ultimately, because he likes Sean Wick, decides to yeah. give him a little bit of mercy. You have an hour-long head start, but everyone's coming after you. 
when I say I don't know if I want a John Wick 3, it's because that, it's an ambiguous ending, but it's like, I don't know what other ending other than he dies you can have for John Wick, because that idea of he couldn't actually get out of this life, in yeah. fact, he could only get in it deeper, and now he's kind of fucked and has to go on the run with his dog, and you just kind of imagine his adventures from there, that's, that's an ending. Like, I understand it's not a resolution 100%, yeah. but it's a really good thematic ending for that character, I think, yeah. especially in the story of John Wick Chapter 2. Yeah, no, I definitely agree, and I really love the, like, the steps of the denouement section of, like, it's, you know, he finds out he has an hour left, and he, like, starts to walk away, and then, like, he starts seeing people, and then he starts searing, like, they're getting the phone calls, and so he starts slowly jogging and jogging, and he's getting more freaked out, and then he's just, like, a full-on sprint, and that's how the movie ends, is him just, like, realizing I'm probably totally fucked. Like, that's a great way to, without, I think that's a better way to end the movie than just showing him get shot. It's, it's more impactful to see, yes. like, he fully realizes, like, I'm, like, he's actually afraid in that moment, and, like, you've never really seen John Wick like that you've never seen him like you've seen him be like sort of intimidated a little bit or like like realize the odds are really against him you've never seen him fall on like kind of lose his shit and run away from something and it's a really interesting parallel to the first movie because the ending of the first movie is that he chooses to get back on his feet and live again yeah and this movie is he chooses to run but is afraid this time it's like I said, they're, they're visually echoes of each other, but they're very different in what they're suggesting about where the character is at. So there's, in these two movies, even though John Wick is kind of a static character by his nature, he actually grows a lot in different ways, and that he's yeah. at a very different place at the end of both movies than he is at the start of those movies. And I love that. That's, again, not something you see in a lot of action films like this. Yeah, and but the other thing I do like is that if they do make a John Wick 3, I think they have a good yes. starting point for a movie that would be very different from John Wick 1 or 2 in terms of, like, the overall plot. Like, it can no longer just be, oh, this dude destroyed something I have that I care about, so I'm going to go after him. Like, now, like, I like that the framework for another sequel, by definition, like, has to be different. And I think that's a good spot that, like, whether they want to make another John Wick movie or not, I think they have both ended this movie perfectly and set up a sequel perfectly. Yes. That they have an enticing idea for a narrative continuation that is also, like, a very different sort of plot structure that the next one could have. And it, and it would be presumably a good, like, ending to the story, because I don't know how you would do a John Wick 4, but yeah. I can see a John Wick 3. Yeah. But I really like the idea of a whole John Wick sequel that is more built around specifically, like, him having to fight off a bunch of assassins that is more like a full movie version of the montage at the end of this one, where he has to fight through, like, these three or four assassins. Yeah. That is a really awesome idea to me. This ending also gives Keanu Reeves the great kiss-off line, I'll kill them. I'll kill, kill them all. And yeah. Ian McShane saying, of course you will. Yeah. Ian McShane, man. He's so good. He's so good at it. And he was great in the first one. I love his scenes in this. I love yeah. Ian McShane. He's just, yeah. Every time he said excommunicado, I was just like, fucking just, yes, just keep on saying that. Because he, he says it so well. He just, he sells the absurdity of this stuff yeah. so beautifully. I also love, uh, Lance Reddick is in this one less, but the concierge. I love that, and I love that he has this weird little relationship with John Wick's dog, mm -hmm. where he says, "Yes, Mr. Wick, he was a good Wick, boy. He was a good dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. It's just that's great. I almost thought the payoff to that would be he was going to ask Lance Reddick to like look after his dog. Yeah, at me the end. too. Although I like that he actually goes on the run with his dog because, of course, he does. Yes, it's great. Yeah. So, yeah, great movie. Better than I thought it could be. And yeah, definitely. Boy, I, whether it's a John Wick sequel or something else, I can't wait to see what Chad Stileski and this team do in the future. Uh, and I should say, the first movie, uh, it was technically co-directed by Chad Stahelski and one other guy, I think Dan 
Veitch or something like that. I'm forgetting his exact name, but they were the stunt team on The Matrix, and they co-directed the first movie, although the other guy is not credited because of DGA rules. Oh. He's credited. It's like the uh, how the Coen brothers used to do it, where one is director, one is producer. This one was just directed by Stahelski, because the other guy, if I'm not mistaken, is directing Deadpool 2, oh. which I think is a really good yeah, use of his talents. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Because Deadpool 1 is really good. I, I can see that getting to another level if you have someone who really knows stunts could even build that up yeah. more. Um, but yeah, so that team is going places, I think, which yeah. is neat. I'm I'm just looking forward to if in a potential John Wick three of just seeing more people pay for shit with like weird random pirate gold coins <laughs> that like every all the assassins in this world just have like a bunch of pirate coins that they carry around with them. That's like apparently like fucking when this assassin like guild or whatever was established, they like built it off of like a fucking sunken Spanish frigate that had a bunch of gold doubloons or something in it. Like what? I just love that that's their currency. Why can't Assassin's Creed be this fun with its lore? Yeah, exactly. Like it, it, it I like that it is just serious enough to feel really cool when Ian McShane is talking about like the marker, and it is also just ridiculous enough that when you think about it, it's like. Why the fuck do they have all these goddamn pirate coins? Like, that's so insane and weird. And, like, what is the exchange rate for, like, one pirate coin into U.S. dollars? And, like, where where's the, the fucking banker dude and, like, the con, the Continental that, that you go to to, like, hand him all your fucking pirate coins to get well, actual I, money from? It's it's this weird, like, uh, if you look at the two movies together, like, I think the suggestion is that their their whole hierarchy is, like, this weird sort of socialist structure where the coins really represent, like, directly... Like, services yeah. like not just currency for currency's sake like the whole idea is that you're exchanging favors with people and like the marker is like a more heightened version of that where it's like a, you know a blood pact but like the whole idea because there's that one scene where he's talking with the guy in the hallway in john wick one after he beats up uh, adrian pilecki and he's like would you like to earn a coin and the whole idea is like you do this for me and then maybe one day i'll do something for you where you can exchange it for a service with someone else in our big society yeah. and i just i love imagining like how did this all come together where did exactly. this start it's, it's like like what's like the end game like how like like it's just like what does this organization exist to do like would you have this really complex internal economy of, based on pirate coinage like but you're still giving out hits that are worth like seven million dollars or whatever like how does that function like what is the point like what do you what is all this shit i think there is like whether they they explore that more if they make another movie or not like i do love that there's all this insane territory for like I kind of want to read, like, the spin-off expanded universe John Wick novel or something, you know, that explains all this random shit. Yeah. No, it's good stuff. Yeah. So, that's John Wick Chapter 2. It's a good weekend for movies. That and Lego Batman, two very different ones, but good stuff. Yeah. I'm happy uh, we've got some good movies here. I, I have not gone to see two, like, original movies in a theater in one weekend in forever. So right, yeah. it was nice to like have two movies back to back to go see and be like, I'm excited for this. Yeah, it's been a while since I went to the theater to see something that wasn't a superhero movie. I think the last one was Shin Gojira. Nice, yeah. I, I saw both of these at the Draft House, and I had a special milkshake with both of them, and that was fun. So Did it, they had one of them, they had made four Lego Batman, which was the na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na oh, nice. shake, which was a... Banana vanilla shake, and it was really good. That's nice. And I had, well, I guess it was the other one was special. I just had chocolate chip cookie shake with John Wick. But anyway, it was a good weekend for both movies and milkshakes. Yeah. Did you have to pay for your milkshake at John Wick 2 with a pirate coin? No. Sadly, that would have been a great, like, they give you a coin to, like, yeah. pay with your meal or something. Yeah. Like, but seriously, put your, like, credit card under it, but this is cool. Yeah. yeah. No. Anyway, um, I, I love there being good movies to talk about. It's great. Yeah. 
All right, so let's go ahead and move on and talk about a good video game. Gravity, good video game. Gravity Rush 2. Gravity Rush Chapter 2 and Chapter 3. <laughs> and Chapter 4, four kind yeah. of. Yeah, okay, let's start there. Spoilers, okay, yeah. we have talked about Gravity Rush 2 a lot so far. Two weeks ago we did spoiler-free impressions, mostly gameplay stuff. I don't know how much of that we'll revisit here, although some of it we have to because the game changes in a lot of ways later yeah. on. Um, and then we talked about a little bit last week. Um, when we first talked about Gravity Rush 2, I was... Without knowing it, very near the end of the Jirgapara Lao section yeah. of the game, and it definitely threw me for a loop that that ends when it ends, and then we go back to Hexaville and basically start over with a new story, new characters, some returning from the old game, but like mostly until the end, unconnected from the Jirgapara Lao stuff. Like chapter two and three are very separate in weird ways, yeah. and I and then it, chapter four like brings it all around, and I don't know how I feel about that structure because. I really intensely loved Gravity Rush 2 and was kind of hooked to playing it up until you get back to Hexaville. And it's not that I dislike the Hexaville stuff or dislike Hexaville itself. I obviously love it because I loved the first game. But it was just, I found myself so invested in everything they were building up in Jirga Paralau. It's such an interesting um, open world. It's got such this interesting hierarchy and so many stories were going on there I was invested in. And... It's, I don't think that story like wraps up poorly or anything. It wraps up very well with like the big house you have to fight and all this stuff. And, and Lisa, um, the head of the Bonga yeah, settlement. Lisa, Lisa. Yeah, she winds up like taking over the town in a good, like saving it. And so there's a lot of cool stuff there and it resolves. But it was just this feeling of like, I've poured, by that point you've already poured a lot of time into this game. Yeah. And you're meeting all these new characters and like it's built up its own, you know, visual style and music that's distinct from the first game. And then you go back to Hexaville and at first I thought that was really cool because it's like, oh my god, they rebuilt Hexaville inside this game. I didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. So that was neat. It was cool to see the old places again, see some of the old characters. But I guess I just started feeling like there were diminishing returns just from a pacing standpoint of like for a long... Because the Hexaville section is very long, like all the parts of the game. And I didn't, it felt so disconnected from what I had been playing up to that point while still having like the same mechanics and stuff that it felt like I'd kind of stopped playing the game I was loving and playing like a, a different kind of sequel to the first game that was cool, but I don't know if, because the so much of Gravity Rush is about discovery and that it's such a different game than anything else. Everything it throws at you is so different. And I think Jirga Paralau in that you know first half of the game does such a great job enhancing those elements and that you're constantly discovering things. And then to have that second half of the game where you're back in places you mostly know. I don't know if there's enough kind of new stuff there to get me interested in it again. You know, the music goes back to the music you already know and stuff like that. It just, I felt the length of the game there because that also is where I felt a lot of the side quests became do something, do it again in like, but more complex, do it again, and then maybe do it two more times for fun. Like, and it just became like there was a lot of things that I felt were kind of artificially lengthening the game out. Um, and I also didn't think the story in that section was as interesting as the story in the first half of the game or, frankly, some of the stuff in Hexaville in the first game. Um, but then, you know, when I finished Chapter 3 and it rolls credits for some random reason, and then you kind of come back and now Jirga Paralau is there and everything's united, I fell, like, instantly back in love with the game. And those, I almost wish there were more side quests there where you're kind of mixing the towns together uh -huh. because that's so great. But it also, it shined a light for me on what I didn't like about the middle stretch of the game, which was taking away... 
I thought, what was the sense of discovery of this game? And getting to go back to Jirga Paralau at the end, I realized that's what was making this game great for me was that sense of expansion. And I thought the Hexaville part for me felt a little insular. But then, you know, the epilogue chapter, chapter four, essentially, goes back to that sense of discovery very realistically because it's all this crazy shit you had no idea the game was going to go into. So that's kind of how I would describe it. I definitely ended the game on a high. I liked it. There were some things, though, near the end that I thought were a little diluted by... I think some of the, like, the length of the game and that there was a part of the, a good stretch of the game where I felt a little detached from it. And that, um, you know, for instance, the very end of Gravity Rush 2, that last boss fight, you fight him like 10 times in a row and it keeps escalating and escalating and escalating. And that's fine in theory, except that there are too many other boss fights in the game, I think, that do that same kind of thing. And I thought they, I didn't like that they kind of played that card too many times before you get to the end, and then they really have the big all-out boss fight. I thought that card had been played a few too many times for me, and I got a little numb to it, but it's also this incredible, like, Hideaki Anno-style anime thing that's just fucking crazy. Yeah. So, it's a good game. I had some issues with the middle, but certainly a a game that ends that strongly and ties both games together in a way that makes this feel like just one really long game developed over, like, a six-year time period... I've never seen anything quite like that. And so that yeah. was kind of incredible. Yeah, for, for me, like, I've, I have been wanting to fucking talk about the end of this game for so long now because I finished it the first week it came out, like, when we, I had already finished it when we recorded that first podcast. I don't know how you finished yeah. it that fast. And, and <laughs> when you go back and listen to that podcast, like, now that you have finished mm-hmm. the game, I had to talk around so much shit. It was driving me crazy trying to, like, not... I accidentally dropped, like, 500 fucking spoilers because the game, once you get to where Hexaville comes back, I feel like your perspective on what that... Not just what Gravity Rush 2 is, but Gravity Rush as a whole is, is so completely different than it is, like, the second before you go back to Hexaville. Absolutely, because before that, I just thought this was the sequel where you're in Jirga Paralau and that's uh-huh. going to be the story. And, and to some degree, I will say... I think in a perfect world, and I wouldn't be surprised if the developers would agree, they would have gotten, like, guaranteed financing to make, like, a Gravity Rush 2 and 3, and they might have been, like, two separate games, and they would have, like, really made those feel like discrete experiences, and I think maybe instead they thought, we're going to put everything into this shot, because we have the shot to make Gravity Rush 2, and let's do everything we want to do with this world, and they did it. That's not necessarily bad, but I can see the moment where I do think there is a, a pace disconnect for me because of that. Um... But it's also, it's an ambition thing that you can't help but respect, because it's like, holy shit, they poured everything they possibly could into this fucking game. Up to and including that crazy ending that I don't think you can make another game out of that. Yeah, no. And it it is something where I totally see your issues with the pacing when you get back to Hexaville, and I do think that that section is weaker than the Jirgaparalawa section, for sure. But, like, I was not, I did not have those issues with it, and I was like, if anything, I was propelled when I got to that part, which is, like, one of the ways that, like, how I finished that game as quickly as I did, is that it, something about that moment when you go back to Hexaville, I feel like, like I said, it's something where my perspective on the whole series, like, immediately changed where I feel like, and that whole section is about that, and then when you get to the epilogue, it's like that a hundred times, where it's... Gravity Rush feels like it's this weird, insane Trojan horse in some ways. Of like it originally presented itself as one thing, and then you, I slowly realized like over the course of playing Gravity Rush Two, once you get back to Hexaville, that's like, oh no, this is this story is something totally different than what I ever thought it was, and it feels like they had that, they were aware of that the whole time, and it's like this insane grand thing that it's only once you've gone through all this shit can you really see the design of it all and what they're really trying to do in, like, this world that they've constructed of, like, 
there's something about that movement of playing Gravity Rush 1 and being all in Hexaville, and then you get to play the beginning of Gravity Rush 2, and it's all in Jirgapar Lao, and the Jirgapar Lao stuff feels so disconnected from the Hexaville stuff. It feels like it, it, there's, other than like, you know, that Cat is there, and Raven's there, and Sid is there, it has nothing to do with any of the shit that happened, or like the Nevi are there. Like, other than that, it is this totally contained bottle story. It's kind of funny. In yeah. our podcast two weeks ago, I said, I think you could maybe play this without playing the first one. And I think from where I was, that was a reasonable thing yeah. to say. And I, that was one of the only places in that where I was like, I just felt like, no, I have to tell you that is not the case at all with this game. I'm but not going to tell I, you why. Right. But that is not the way this game is. And but it's yeah. not. Totally, but you kind of see what I, yeah, why I exactly, thought yeah, that. Yeah, that it feels like Jerga Power Loud, that section feels so contained and so just like its own thing. And it and it seemed like, oh, this is what like Gravity Rush is. This is like Gravity Rush 1 is this weird self-contained like insane superhero story that has like a bunch of like manga anime and like French comic book influence but it, it felt like Gravity Rush 1 was like this beautiful weird aesthetic experience of that you had all these plot threads with like alias and stuff that just stop and never really resolve and there's like three or four of those in Gravity Rush 1 that feel like that's just this that, that it didn't feel like Gravity Rush 1 was waiting for a sequel it felt like that was the style of that game was that it like existed in this world where all these stories are happening and they don't need to be resolved because they, they're just it's this crazy daze of like everything is upside down and backwards and these storylines don't need to make sense or resolve or come back on themselves like we don't need to go in depth on all that stuff and that was just what I thought Gravity Rush 1 was and then Gravity Rush 2 comes out and it's like oh this is this wholly self-contained story and maybe at some point they'll touch on Kat's origin of like she still has amnesia she never recovered her memories in Gravity Rush 1 she never even really cared too much to try to recover her memories in Gravity Rush 1 so it's like maybe they'll touch on that but it never seemed like they were really going that, that invested in the idea of doing that in the Jirga Parlau part and then you go back to Hexaville and it's like wait what like because it's like oh, you're back in Hexaville like several years later and not only are you back in Hexaville it's like the game stylistically returns to the sort of the stuff that it was doing in Gravity Rush 1 that it gets a lot more philosophical it's less focused on these very grounded sort of class issues that define the Jirgapar Lao section it's a lot more about like the nature of time and humans living in time and change and like it's about those way bigger grand issues in the way that like Gravity Rush 1 was concerned with that kind of shit in, in ways that, like, sometimes were, were, was executed well in Gravity Rush 1, sometimes not as well. And Gravity Rush 2 goes back to that. But I think there was something about the idea of, like, of like, like there's, they were trying something insane that, like, I kept on... I just had to see what they were going to do with this. Coupled with, I, I thought it was really just sort of exciting to go back to Hexaville and be in that place and, like have Hexaville be so fully realized on the PS4 and the redone versions of all the, the themes from Hexaville are really cool and just revisiting that world like five years after Cat left it and like what has happened here and, and like you know and trying to figure out the mystery of like Kali Angel and all that stuff and then ultimately that sort of story resolves and then opens up into the true conclusion that I feel like reveals the sort of structure of it that to me the, the, the beautiful thing of, there's the sort of two things that are really amazing about the end of Gravity Rush 2 to me is that one it sort of reveals that the structure to me the structure of the game is so intentional in that you start with this really kind of like weird grand philosophical thing in Gravity Rush 1 and it feels like it's not very grounded and just dealing with like sort of big sort of thought issues and Gravity Rush 2's Perjurgapar Lao section is really tightly grounded and focused on class stuff then, then you go back to Hexaville and it starts dealing with the grander themes again, but I think it starts sort of like giving you this idea of 
but these these like more sort of philosophical issues are the same issues that we were dealing with before and then quite literally becomes hexaville has always it's it's always been the same thing it's just you haven't gotten to the next part yet because hexaville is just the undercity of jergaparlau it is the same structure is the same vertical structure you just never went to the fucking top of it yet and like you have you didn't even know that there was the top because you have always been in this spot and you never thought of like that there is something above you that is controlling these things and has power to help you and you are part of that system but you can't see that structure because you are so mired deep in hexaville you're not cognizant that it really exists and i think that's an amazing thing about what it does and then i also love that ultimately gravity rush 2 or like gravity rush as a whole is not a superhero story it's a fairy tale and yeah. that's like what it has always been again but like it's always been that weird you were just so deep in the detail of it that you could never see the the larger structure of it's this story about this girl who falls from the sky with magic powers but like she's a queen from the fucking sky world who didn't who saw the plight of the people living below her and wanted to help them but she couldn't and so she was cast down and had to sort of like learn from the people living below her and to, to rise back up to be able to help them like it's this fairy tale structure and, and see, I think it's like it's so amazing that it just pulls this insane thing that, that Grave Rush has always been kind of like that you just never could see it until you got to the end oh I agree with a lot of that and I think that's what's so beautiful about that ending is that sense of realization that shines back on everything you've done so far you know but I do think that speaks to a little bit of my issues with the chapter 3 stuff in Hexaville is I just I think to bring some of that out because I think one you've had more time to think about yeah. some of these things but like uh, to I think some make some of that have the impact I think it, it in part does have and could have even more of is just I might shorten some of the stuff in Hexaville and maybe lengthen some of the stuff in the final chapter where maybe some of that gets a little more room to breathe and even that out a little bit because like again it's just it's the starting over with a new story having to resolve that and then we go on and do the final thing. It, it works fine, but I don't know if... Like, I can draw a lot of those aesthetic connections and things that you're drawing there in thematic. I don't know if I can draw the exact connection between all the Kali Angel stuff and what comes later. Okay. Whereas I feel like I can draw that line from the Jirgaparalau stuff to the end of the game. A lot of the stuff with Kali Angel and the mayor, which I actually thought started fantastically. I love that yeah, one that, mission that, where that, you... That, yeah, the mission where you're following him around and, like, getting his life story before you realize... Well, like, the player probably realizes who he is, but Kat doesn't know who he is. Yeah. Yet. Right, I loved all of that, and then I thought it went a little, like, I thought what they were going to do is, maybe the mayor is just a nice guy, I thought, like, because the conventional version is he's actually trying to destroy everything, and they wind up going down that route, and it felt a little rote to me, um, but it has a cool anime fight at the end, so yeah. whatever. I know, I like that his whole thing was that he's trying to stop time, which means, like, he's time trying to stop change, which to me does kind of tie into... That is what, like, in Jirgaparlau, that is what the, the council or whatever are effectively trying to do. Sure, yeah. They want to keep anything from changing because if you exist in a world where the structure, the social structure exists to your advantage, you want to maintain that as much as possible. And so it's like trying to find a way to sort of keep things being static only helps those in power. It never helps those who are being oppressed. I can see that more. I mean... Yeah, I can see that, because you definitely, all three stories in Gravity Rush 2 have that theme to them. Yeah. They just have them from radically different perspectives. Yeah. And I guess I hadn't thought of that. But no, you're right, because I mean, when you get to the end of the game, the whole thing is about this other society that very literally wants to crystallize itself. Yeah. So, no, it's, yeah. It's definitely, I would love to one day find time to, like, play all of Gravity Rush 1 and 2 together yeah. in a way that kind of 
see what the whole story is because as we just talked about last time it is so densely novelistic yeah and but that, it, that is like in its structure ultimately like that's even more true than we like or like as you knew when you were making those comments but like yeah. it does have this this novel or literary structure to it but like a charles dickens novel like not, yeah no i mean like, yeah. yeah like like really good novels you mean right like, yeah but i'm not like you know not like the conception of the novel is like this thing with a very clear beginning middle and end i mean like fucking charles dickens writing 800 pages serially yeah. mm-hmm. and going through like these peaks and valleys in the story until you kind of bring it all together at the end it's very much that kind of yeah. long form serial novelistic structure yes yeah, yeah. no it, it, yeah so. it, it, and i think it it and again, like, you know, I, I can totally see where you had the pacing issues with it. But for me, like, that was, that is kind of my favorite thing about Gravity Rush 2. Like, it's, it's that it has this insane, brilliant structure to it that, that whether it works for you or not, like, it has this sort of sense of what it wants to be. And it's so much bigger than I think anyone thought it would ever go for, you know? It, undeniable. I mean, yeah. it maybe wore me out a little bit. But in some ways, that's more of a me thing than a game thing. It's just I was like, I, I, I think, honestly, because its structure is so different than anything else I've ever played, I just, I don't think I had, like, the muscles to know how to play a game where you feel like you've played a whole game. And, and then, then it, like, start... hits the reset button and, and starts yeah. telling another story. Yeah. That's very strange. And, you know, I think there are some legitimate issues with how it was handled, but I also love the ambition of that. And, like, some of that is just, like, if you're not prepared to play a game of kind of that scope to it, it's very strange. And it's hard, you know, I could look at my clock. I have no idea how much time I actually poured into this game. It could have been 80 fucking hours. It wasn't, but I don't know. But that's also kind of what Crappy Rush is about, is the timelessness yeah. of everything that's going on and the ethereality of everything that goes on. So let's talk about the end of the game. Okay, yeah. Let's because, talk about the Yeah. So basically, once you're ready to start, the game has probably, you know, saw like three hours of stuff at the end where you're not doing side quests. It's just episode 21 to the end, which is 27. So you got a lot of stuff through to the end. Yeah. And the first thing you do is you're climbing up the big stem. And that's interesting because in Gravity Rush 1, you went down. Yeah, you go down the world tree and now you have to... And that, that was always one of the... It was another one of those sort of like weird unresolved things about Gravity Rush 1 that was like... It felt very conspicuous that you never went up that thing. But yeah. I had kind of, I had totally forgotten about it by the time we got to Gravity Rush Two. Obviously, because like you don't even get back to where the World Tree is until you're like 15 hours yeah. or whatever into the game. Well, I was wondering if they were going to, because I tried at one point while I was just playing around in Hexaville to climb as far up I could in the World Tree, and you, there's artificial points where yeah. you have to stop. So I was just like, well, maybe it's just there for decoration, and we're never going to see. And that would have been fine. I don't think it's like they have to thematize all of that. But they very much yeah. do. Yeah, because they never even in Gravity Rush 1, other than the fact that Cat falls to the to where Hexville is, they never really indicate or hint that there's going to be anything up there. Like, it's just a big fucking tree. But when you say, you know, the, the connection between that and Jirga Paralau, that is such a smart observation, I think, because we both said the moment that grabbed us in Gravity Rush 2 initially is when you fall down yeah. to the lowest part of Jirga Paralau. And I think the moment that grabs you at the end is when you decide to go up. And it's like, it's this little thing that... You should have just realized from like moment one of Gravity Rush 1 and they were clearly planning for is like it's that question that no one cared to ask which is well where did she fall from? Exactly. You know? And I think you're probably just thinking maybe it doesn't matter but it winds up mattering so much because where she fell from is everything and I think that's what's so surprising in so many ways about the ending is that it takes on this tone that at once feels very different and yet utterly true to what the game was. And you say fairy tale, and I love that description, because it's literally, it's kind of like the beanstalk, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. And this cloud heaven up there. And she goes up there, and, you know, just like, I really did not expect we would ever get a story about Kat's actual, like, origin, because I just yeah. thought, 
She's just a character without a backstory, and that works totally fine. Yeah, it was one of my favorite things about Gravgrush 1 is that she has amnesia, and she doesn't really give a shit. Like, yeah. there's a couple of times where she's kind of like, oh, I wonder where I came from. But for the most part, she's like, I'm going to live in this weird sewer pipe, because fuck it. Like, whatever, i got to do something, right? Like, right. who cares where I came from? i got to live in the moment. Like, that's a big part of her character. Yeah, but I think in, in choosing to resolve questions that either Kat hadn't asked or we hadn't asked, it feels so surprising and full yeah. of revelations. And I mean, I, I'm kind of curious to hear what your perspective was playing through it. Because when you get to that point, you get up there and you have the young king say something about uh, um, auntie or something. Yeah. And then everything kind of changes. And now you're playing as this queen who clearly looks like Cat. And you have this weird daily routine. And it's very strange and dreamlike. Yeah. And I thought, maybe like the answer is that everything we had been playing was a dream. And that this is the actual character and she was dreaming of herself that way. And, and the way Gravity Rush is set up, that would not be an unfulfilling climax to me yeah. if that's where we went with it. But I was like, but kind of anything could happen. But I was very much, that section is long enough that you get to kind of wallow in it and think about, well, where is this going? And it's so interesting. Yeah, it's, one, it's another one of those parts where you so desperately wish that the game remained or retained its Japanese title of Gravity Days. Because it's like, that makes that section like, feel so more appropriate, I guess, yeah. in a weird way, of that it does, like, you, like, I spent most of that section where you're walking around in, like, the big queen garb and all that stuff and, and listening to your advisors and walking down the hallway from your room to the throne and all that, of just being like, is this a flashback to when Cat was the queen of this place? Is this the cat of this present timeline? Is this her ancestor? Like, or, or like you said, like, was, like, all the game I played a dream and this was her, like, she read this story in a book and like that's like she was dreaming about it like what am i playing and the game is like you know very intentionally doing that of you're so disoriented by that transition and you and you have no idea of like especially because raven's not there and dusty's not there and you're like what the fuck where am i what is happening but like the there's something about that part of the game that I find so beautiful. I'm just, I love the music there, and I love the aesthetics. It's so different than everything else in Gravity Rush. Or Gravity Rush is a game that has so much life to it that like all the, the visuals and the music and everything is so vibrant and beautiful. The music in that section especially. Yeah. Just, yeah. And, and here, it's like everything is so stark and plain, and, and you are constricted in this big, cumbersome dress, and you can't jump, you can't fly. You are so stuck in a fucking box and you just are going through and walking up to this throne and listening to people prattle and going back and writing in your diary and going to bed and waking up and going and they have you do that like seven fucking times and it's it's something where like it, it, it never it's something that should have gotten really boring but I think it doesn't because it just enough changes each time you go through the routine and you're stuck asking so many questions constantly of just like what is going on on like a very practical literal level like where like just where is this even taking place right now it, it it's building up that mystery and then i think the reveal of who cat is and where she comes from is so powerful and so effective that of that it's just sort of like colors who she is and like the journey that she has had and and, and you i don't there's something about that i found so sort of just beautiful about again like the fairy tale quality of it of that she got turned into this queen that she never really asked to be and she and cat being who she is wanted to save as many people as she could but she was stuck in the social system she was in and she couldn't do what she needed to so she was cast out and her whole journey up to that point is sort of having to one have like find the strength to back up the conviction she has and then like shed the naivety that she has 
and that's like so much of what gravity rush is she's such a naive character and it's not until you get like you as you're going through gravity rush 2 and she's sort of learning about all these things and learning about jerkapar lao and how that world works and coming back to hexaville and learning more about how hexaville works that she can like be what she needs to become and be like and like and, and that's not a queen she doesn't need to be a queen she just needs to be a hero she just needs to know what to fight you know and there's something about that story i i just found so powerful especially in the aesthetic sense of well, the progression of it there yeah well the progression is the key thing because it's how it's revealed to the player yeah. and that i think the game ultimately goes from much closer link between you and cat than I thought they were ever going for. Yeah. Because the way that's doled out to you in the game is that at the moment Cat is thrust into this scenario where she's the queen again and they've re kind of captured her and Raven's yeah. down in the basement, she is just as discombobulated as you are. Both you and Cat are in the exact same scenario where you are like, I don't know who I am, I don't know who I'm playing, yeah. I don't know who this body is, I don't know what this situation is, I'm what I don't know what's behind that door, you're trying to figure it out. And at the moment Kat gets to go through that door and figures it out, you figure it out. And yeah. she realizes, I am Kat, but I was also this queen a hundred years ago, they've taken me back, I have to rescue Raven, but even then you haven't answered every question. And so then, in one of the most brilliant turns in the game, I think, is the puzzle level, where yeah. the, the rest of the backstory is revealed as Kat literally has to great visual metaphor put the pieces into place to yeah. get each part of the memory back and ultimately you know you have the origin of Sid and all these other parts of the game and it's both very dreamlike but also very literal at this point because this is what happened to her and it yeah. is who these people were and I think and I also just love the audacity that the game just decides for a level we're going to be a really casual version of Catherine let's exactly yeah let's like move this... some blocks around and it, it like and I it was something where I could have done with like a more sub side quests or something that had that puzzle mechanic because I did really enjoy it especially yeah. when they started sort of making it a bit more complicated at the end of that part but it is something where it's kind of amazing to me that this story does the thing of like we are going to answer basically all of your questions and like some of like the answers are going to be a bit confusing but we're going to answer all the questions and generally when a piece of media does that it sucks it's yeah. just terrible and it's never what you want it to be and here it was something where like i didn't even realize that was something the game was ever even interested in doing let alone that it was actually going to do it and it was never something that i thought i would have wanted at all but the way they pull it off is so perfect and just so amazing and, and again it's so revealing to just going back and revealing the whole structure of the story and what this has been the whole time you just never saw you just never really read chapter one of this story and you've only gotten all the way to the end now and you can see okay that's how it begins but of course it begins that way and it's also tied into one of my favorite parts in gravity rush 2 is just in general the music but the song that cat has from her memory of her mother or whatever that is the, the the instrumental version of that plays at the very beginning of Gravity Rush One when she falls down to Earth or Middle Earth with Midgard or whatever, and and now like in Gravity Rush Two that comes up a couple of times. In she sings it and you get the lyrical version of it in Jirgapar Lao. If you play all the side quests, there's a side quest yeah. with one of my favorite side quests in Exodus where you're with the old guy That's and you great. go around and, and you sing that song there and then it starts coming up as the like music box she has and you find out that it's a song that her mother had and then it or the mother sort of passed down to her and then it comes up obviously at the end and where they sort of helps sort of give her power or whatever and there's something about that the of, of that like you know obviously we we and everyone who has ever played gravity rush has been saying the whole time that the music is amazing but there's something so cool about the game then bringing that in it's like this linchpin uh, narrative element to it that again has been present the entire time because that song is from Gravity Rush One. It's just it, you 
never thought that it was going to come back and be this big thing. But it, it's like one of the more remarkable songs from that first soundtrack. And it's like, and having that aesthetic quality of the storytelling that Gravity Rush has always been amazing at, at telling story in this weird sort of aesthetic experiential way where things may not always make perfect sense, but it, it makes this sort of emotional sense to you. I think Gravity Rush 2, the ending of that sort of pulls that off with such a plum in a way that I've kind of never really seen. Even when a lot of sort of like anime and manga have that, that kind of storytelling thing they go for of the, of the ending and shit is going to get insane and confusing and you're never really going to understand quite what they're doing at the end of Neon Genesis Evangelion but like in an emotional way it'll have some impact I think Greg Rush 2 does that better than anything I've seen it definitely works you over I mean it, yeah. you mentioned the fairy tale equivalent you know fairy tale folklore either way you go it's, it's very much that kind of thing you know the thing I, I was thinking of with it is the Japanese folktale the Princess Kaguya story yeah which is the the girl who comes from the moon without knowing it, and she you know she is born onto this earth as this like you know star child, and she grows up and she has to kind of try to find her place, and ultimately she finds she was from the heavens and has to go back, and um, the way uh, there's there's the Isao Takahata movie of that the Studio Ghibli film, and that actually does a very similar thing Gravity Rush does where she has this song she keeps singing, and it's not until the end she realizes it's the moon song and that's where she's from. But it definitely has that great fairy tale element, folktale element of things returning to their origin point. Yeah. So the whole ending of, you know, and this is done very suddenly, but I think it works, of Kat defeating the guy and then realizing her role now is to become the supernova and kind of go full with what her powers were. Yeah, she, she has it. to become a singularity. A singularity, of, of yeah. Pushing her gravity powers to the maximum to sort of like contain global warming or whatever metaphor you want to sign yeah. with like the destruction that's coming upon this world yeah and that's that's the fairy tale ending that's yeah. the folktale version of that which is you know the character you know going through this entire journey reclaiming their memories and realizing what that is and usually that ending is fairly definitive and i like how that works here yeah so yeah a lot of just beautiful stuff the scale of it also is incredible it's yeah, it works. And then and then let's talk about Raven's role in the ending because I really love what they do. I love like what they do with her character the whole way through. And it was something where in our last pod or our podcast two weeks ago when we talked about Gravity Rush, of that I said in that podcast, it was something that I realized was a, technically wrong, but I couldn't take it back because it would have been a spoiler. That I said that Raven was with you for most of the game because I and I told you that like right when you were near the end of the Jergapar Lao section. That's not true. And, yeah, it's not true. It's so not true. And as soon as I said that, I realized like, wait, no, that's not true because she's not with you for most of the Hexaville stuff. But it's something where. I realize, like, it's just that her presence is so sort of powerful in the game. And, and I think, like, when she is gone, you feel yes. that she's gone because Kat feels that she's gone. Like, way more than any other character, like, even more than Sid, Kat reflects on when Raven is absent and brings her up when she's not there. And it's something where I love at the end, it's like the, when you get to play as Raven in fight against electricity, which is such an insane thing to fucking name your last boss is literally it's just electricity. It's not even a metaphor at some point. But but yeah, that Raven, you get to play as Raven and Raven gets to become, she becomes the superhero or whatever. You know, like yeah. she gets to occupy that role of, you know, the, she used to be like an orphan or whatever and fell into the gravity well in Gravity Rush 1. Like her backstory is so insane. And then she comes out having superpowers and she's been like the sort of badass anti-hero cat through Gravity Rush 1 and Gravity Rush 2, obviously they, they bring that back at the beginning of Gravity Rush 1, or Gravity Rush 2, when she's Nightgale and, and sort of back into this antagonistic role temporarily. But there's something so fulfilling about 
being able to play as her and the music, her theme, which is the, the Nightingale song at the end of the Gravity Rush 2 director's soundtrack or whatever they give you. So good. It's, it's like a, compliment, a compilation of her songs throughout Gravity Rush 2 and like the song that plays of her hero theme, like her version of Cat's hero theme that plays when she, be, like, sort of, you get to play as her and you get to fight against that boss is so fucking good. And again, it's something where I didn't realize I was going to have such a strong emotional connection to that story arc because I've always liked Raven's character, but I never thought about her character arc as, like, this big thing. But it, I did have this like really kind of emotional moment of thinking about like her journey as a character connected to her music and the way her music has sort of evolved over the course of the last game and this one and just sort of ascending to this point where she becomes just as good as Kat like just as like not just as skillful as her but just as good and just as willing to put herself out there and help people and be the person that Kat is also like that's such a fulfilling moment for me I, I just... well and the way they thematize that with them being kind of I wasn't sure what they were saying with it, but that they're they're connected in this kind of celestial way. Yeah, that that, that I feel like it's that. Um, I, I think it's that because they it, 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 it's one of those places where Greg Rusty sort of goes so abstract with the storytelling. It, it's hard to figure out what they're saying, but I think it's that when Cat falls to Earth or to Midgard or like Hexaville or whatever, like that is the same kind of moment that Raven as like as the orphan girl falls into the gravity well and I think like they're they basically get their powers at the same moment and their power is like the same power because yeah. their their animals are supposed to be one in the way that the the king kid has his animal I forget it's like it's a stag and it's some other animal it's like a chimera yeah that like their their guardian animals are supposed to be one and they are sort of like separated when when cat falls and they both have this power and they kind of are Kind of, kind of both sides of the same coin. And they're sort of like sisters, not by blood, but by sort of like mission, I guess. Yeah. But I, because of that like connection, which, you know, we know exists even without that exposition, yeah. I just, I really do like that advancement of Raven, not just to that final fight, but even more to the final scene of the game where it's Raven going around town and checking on everyone. Yeah, and just have, doing, doing the daily superhero rounds. And fulfilling the role that Cat had. And again, I, I, it goes back to something I said two weeks ago, before I'd played this section of the game, but I actually think stands up, which is, I think, before you get to the big revelations, I do think I was right in identifying the way they treat Raven and Cat is like, Raven's the superhero, and yes, Cat is yeah. the sidekick. And the point is that Raven comes around to realizing that Cat is kind of the more important of them, for a variety of reasons, in part because she's like the celestial god thing, but also it's like, Raven, her ultimate act of maturity is to become the kind of down-to-earth hero who goes around and just talks to people. Yeah, that does all the mundane stuff that Cat is always doing of helping someone move and, like, taking this old guy around to all his old haunts that, like, he went with his wife to sort of relive his memories. Yeah. Like, Cat is always doing this weird, random, mundane shit to just help random people on the street that is not necessarily going and fighting fucking Dr. Octopus or whatever. Yeah. You know, it, it's helping people in a very real way. And God, this is the kind of thing why this game has to be discussed because once you know the ending, it just recolors everything uh -huh. because that really is, that is the story of a god falling to earth in that cat going around and, and helping all these people. It's not just funny and her kind of being naive and innocent. It's literally the story of going back to the zero point 
and going back to having to know all the people and get to know all the people so you can get back to that state of godhood. Yeah. Like that is, every religion has that story in yeah. some way. Like that's Jesus, that's Buddha, that's the, the Kagia story. It's, yeah. it's all of these, that is the kind of, the narrative with this is when you fall to earth, it is that rebuilding through little human connections. Yeah, and having to, when you live so high up, you don't have the perspective of, like of the world these people live in like what they need and and what you need to do and it is like her having to again like i think it all goes back to her naivety of like thinking that she can when she's up there thinking that she can just fix these problems because she's queen and she can just order people to do this like she has no idea of what she's actually asking people to do what she wants to be done she has to go there herself and like figure out these problems and figure out how society works and like that's that's how you like grow up that's how you become an adult like you do you can't just want things to be a certain way you have to go figure out how something works and do something to fix it and that's like that is the story of these games is her having to sort of like figure that out from from like the smallest thing of like helping a dad out with his alcoholism to like the biggest things of global warming or like nuclear war or whatever like like i think there are some like weird sort of metaphor stuff you can assign to the calamity stuff that they deal with at the end of the game again like the the monster is electricity which is a very like industrial revolution ass like going back to charles dickens that's a fucking like dickens ass kind of thing to do in an anime way it's like electricity is the real monster like like our like weapons technology or whatever is like what's really going to destroy us and and yeah it is her having to go from that journey from like being at the top but not really understanding anything and falling back to zero so she can climb up understanding every single step of the way. It's, it's and like, only then can she solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's most obviously like the Buddha story. I mean, that's yeah. the, the guy, the, the rich man who decides to leave the palace and live the ascetic lifestyle until he attains enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, no, it's, it's an insane thing. Like, like, think back to when we both played like the Grand Rush Remastered in like close proximity to one another. Like, Imagine t- tra- time traveling back to then and being like, you know, dog, Gravity Rush is like, a, it can be read as a metaphor for Buddha. It's like, what, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? And, and being like, oh yeah, that alias stuff, like that all totally comes back. It was like resolved. And yes, it was Sid the whole time, just the way you thought it was. It, it fucking, it had to be Sid because he's the only other fucker that wears a suit. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. It's a good game. It's such a good game. It's such a just like... It's such a crazy singular achievement. Yeah. And, you know, I... It is funny because I think one of my conclusions when we talked about this two weeks ago is like, I'm so happy they made another one. I can't wait for Gravity Rush 3. And I, I and you said that and I was just like, I did, you, you have no idea what you're saying right now. But if you're working from the assumption that Jurga Paralau is Gravity Rush 2, yes. that's, a, that's a reasonable thing to say. Absolutely. If, if you work from the actual knowledge of the totality of Gravity Rush 2, it's like, okay, clearly they're done. Yeah, like there is no more perfect ending than, than what they do here. With especially, I just love the last note they leave it on of like Raven hearing the cat and turning around and, yeah. Cut them and yeah. cutting off. My only question was, I don't know why that scene didn't take place in the little playground where Cat wakes up in Gravity Rush 1. Yeah. yeah I, just, I thought that's where you were yeah. headed and it's not, it's fine, but I just thought you wind up just in kind of this side marketplace, but I thought that's where you were going because it's like, I don't, that's the place and it wasn't, but that's fine because that's also yeah. where she wakes up in the beginning of the Hexaville yeah, section. falls down again. So I, yeah, I just thought they'd already reminded us of this, so maybe that's what they were doing. But no, it's a, it's a beautiful note. It ends with a, us... It ends as intimately as it can for a story that big. Yeah, and, and crazy. It is something where I just... Again, I love the audacity of, like, the sort of Trojan horse quality of the story of 
you come in so you come in at the small point like you come in at the middle arc of the story without knowing that it's the middle arc of the story and just like get introduced to this world and these characters and fall in love with the characters and then it's like when you get to the end you realize like oh no this was a way bigger story than i ever thought but and normally i would say that that would probably fail as like a narrative experiment like that narrative structure is like huge and unwieldy and weird and awkward and i think there are some like weird pains in the middle section of grand rush 2 where it is sort of hard to execute on some things and it has some pacing issues but like overall like this the structure of the story is so insane and and i think they execute on it basically like 95 percent, which is way more than any story reasonably should be able to do and, and look so much of why they're able to do that is because of their style in that it yeah. is minimalist in some ways and that you just have the comic book panels and you have you know little images to go off of because it doesn't flesh out its story as like this you know with big cutscenes and yeah. acting and motion capture and all that stuff that version of the story absolutely would not work yeah exactly it, it is that like again like more like a fairy's tale style of thing or like an epic or you know something like the odyssey or I'm Romance of Three Kingdoms that I'm reading right now. Like, if you you need to deal with some things in a very sparse way to allow your imagination to fill in the blanks, because if you get too deep into it, like nothing will make any sense at all. And they do like that that very sparse way of having the comic book panels and like having it sort of move pretty briskly and just giving you the, the like just enough details that you need in the moment to keep on moving on with the story it does sort of just let you move through it and, and accept it as it goes along until eventually it hits you at the end of like, this is insane. The sort of like multi-crafted metaphor, like allegory world they've built out that like, it's just completely nuts. And I, and, and now like I've, I had such a powerful emotional reaction to everything about that ending that like every time I go on YouTube and I, I, I listen to the song that plays on the credits of, of that it's the, fully lyrical version of that song Mm -hmm. like i have this really powerful emotional reaction to it in the way that i only do to like some of my favorite like movie songs like some like the songs for the lord of the Rings soundtrack and stuff like that i just have persona endings yeah or like the persona songs like i just have this really strong pull to it that that is something that again like i liked gravity rush one a lot but i had no idea that i was going to have that kind of reaction to gravity rush two Gravity Rush 1 is an appetizer. Gravity Rush 2 is the full course meal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Literally three courses in some points. I also so. just love the idea that this professional singer lady had to sing this whole song in weird fake Japanese Oh, French. their their commitment to that language is incredible yeah. through the end of this game. I, I can't believe they stuck with it as hard as they do because like they, you, they really have to do a lot with it at the end of this game. Yeah. And it fucking works. It yep. just does. It's, it's, that's amazing. So... All right, uh, Lego Batman, John Wick, Yakuza Zero, Gravity Rush Two. If that isn't an eclectic enough recommendation, yeah. symbolic of this podcast and its mission, I don't know what is. Yeah, so you know, if if you haven't, if you've listened to this whole podcast and you haven't seen those two movies and played those two games, like you have to go play all that stuff and watch those movies right now. Yeah, or you can't listen to this podcast anymore. <laughs>